This week, we're taking on Quentin Tarantino's Weeb Stravaganza, Kill Bill Volume 1. This is Body Counts and Beer. Hello and welcome to another edition of Body Counts and Beer. I'm Mark Rosenthal. I'm Patrick Bromley. I'm Jonathan Rooney Taylor, a.k.a. Garden Snake. <laughs> oh, man. See, I knew I should have come up with a, a snake thing ahead of time. John always does this. Patrick yeah. and I are never prepared, and then John comes in with some pithy nickname like it's some kind of bit, or it's his thing, and it's not fair. We're Buddy. starting. No, we're starting over. <laughs> I did I'm two Mark- years no. of Weebolo. I am always prepared. All right, we're starting over. <clears throat> Let me take a sip of beer. Yeah, eat some food on microphone too. Audiences love that shit. True. I've gotten I've gotten nothing but positive reviews. By which I mean I've gotten zero reviews. <laughs> so I mean passively they love it. I think. Anyways. Yeah. It's like a continuing resolution. They have to bring up an objection to anything we do. Otherwise, Absolutely true. it's endorsement. Yeah, That's right. It's tacit endorsement. <laughs> I'm Mark Rosendahl, a.k.a. Cobra. <laughs> I'm Patrick Hogan's Pythons Bromley. And I'm Jonathan Rooney, a.k.a. Garden Snake, because I couldn't think of a different snake name. Nah, garden snakes are fun. They're like green and they can't hurt you and they hang out and eat stuff in your garden. That's, That's me one. all over, baby. You're like a, a good citizen. <laughs> yeah, there's John, just, there's John just hanging out in your garden eating, eating bugs. <laughs> right? What a uh, friend. It's your stupid fault for having delicious tomatoes. Uh, so this week... Uh, Already off the rails. Yeah. This week, uh, we are finally discussing uh, a filmmaker who is the bane of Patrick Bromley's existence. There's no uh, one were... I hate more. <laughs> That's true. He he has uh, performance-enhancing drugs that give him enough muscles to break the back of one Patrick Bromley. Yeah. That's right. I loathe that guy. And then I had to whine and let some other kid wear my cool uniform and do all my fun stunts. Then he starts killing people, and it's like, whoa! Can't I mean, do that. Right? He's just we need some sort code. of battle for the cowl. And all yeah, of and this it sucks began. Too. Yeah, and it all sucks, too, because your friend is a French kid, which is even the worst. Right. Yeah. Like a, like a French Batman? Come on. Kiss my ass, DC. Yeah. Adapt that, you nerds. Can't have French uh, Batman. That's like Nazi collaborator Batman. to be fair that batman was part of the multiversity arc that grant morrison did he wasn't a nazi sympathizer it was what if hitler won world war ii universe he was a straight up nazi (laughs) fair that's good to know but don't worry detective chimp foiled all of those plans (laughs) where would we very true i love detective chimp God, God bless Grant Morrison. They are uh, an absolute treasure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this week we are discussing uh, finally the very first Quentin Tarantino film we've done in the podcast, Kill Bill Volume One. 
it's that movie what's got all that music from all those movie trailers you heard. <laughs> this movie is scored entirely by movie trailer needle drops. Well, I think it's, that's a little unfair because this movie was so big when it came out that every movie trailer took its soundtrack. So that I don't think true. it's the movie's fault, but it was very distracting of being like, all right, I remember this phone commercial. No, you don't yeah. understand. The RZA was doing like 12 movies at this time, and he just sort of put together the same tracks for all of them. It's efficiency. <laughs> don't question the yeah. RZA. I would I never, never would. I would never question Bobby Digital. Never, 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 never. I, I uh, will also never, ever, ever see his movie. Was <laughs> it The Man with the Iron Fists? Uh, John, just don't don't get too out of don't 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 get too set too hard a, a boundary on that one because we are limited to what's on HBO Max right now. <laughs> oh no. Oh no. <laughs> and it's definitely on there. Is it part of the Russell Crowe Prestige collection? <laughs> That's right. It's a uh, <laughs> uh yeah, I think it's the diaper he wore. I love that a lot of people uh when they do like a martial arts or an action movie, they'll they'll put on weight uh in yeah. terms of muscle. Russell Crowe, he goes a different way. He puts on weight for that movie, but not in the places you'd expect. (laughs) Come on, John. He's just tacking on mass. (laughs) Right? That's true. You never said where to put the weight. I put it everywhere. Listen, It's me, Russell Crowe. Right. He only knows how to intimidate in the Australian way. In the belly. (laughs) That's true. He outdrinks you, and then when you're not paying attention, he throws like a koala bear at your face, and then you get chlamydia. You lost. That's why I always carry eucalyptus leaves in my back pocket just in case I run into Russell Crowe and his army of flying rabid koala. (laughs) Well, John, the problem with that is that's just the first wave because the second wave come the boxing kangaroos. And they're not just them regular kangaroos. They're those weird freak kangaroos that you see on videos every now and then where they're just (laughs) absolutely Arnold Schwarzenegger (laughs) fucking jacked. Well, that's why I made friends with uh, George Foreman. And he'll take on that <laughs> kangaroo three rings. Yeah, yeah, three rings. Three rings. Three Five rings. rounds per ring. After gotcha. each round, you have to go to a different ring, and then they recycle. Okay. Of course. Okay. This is a dynamite beginning, guys. <laughs> so anyways, uh, we did say the name of the movie, right? We did get that far. Correct? Hell yeah, we rule. So Kill Bill begins, <laughs> like all movies do, with a dying Uma Thurman in black and white. And an old Klingon proverb, if you watch <laughs> yeah. the American cut. I did. What's, friends, what happens in the English cut? Friends, Romans, countrymen, I have seen the Japanese cut of Kill Bill Volume 1. And I will tell you three major differences. Ooh, that's fancy. What's the title card in Japan? The title card in Japan is, I can't remember the name of the director, but it's a famous Japanese director who had recently passed away at the time of filming, Hmm. and it is a a tribute to his work. Oh, and what does it say? Like, you should be watching Tampopo instead of this stupid Tarantino movie? (laughs) Uh, First off, it's Pompoko, and those tanuki have enormous genitalia. Whoa, we are definitely talking about two different movies. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think I think John, you're talking about Mario's Tanuki suit from Super Mario Brothers Three. Uh, no, I'm talking about the Studio Ghibli children's classic Pompoko, starring Tanuki. With I cannot stress this enough, <laughs> genitalia 
the size of which they can use as wings to fly through the night. They get tricked up by a fox to steal all their money. I alternatively was talking about Tampopo, an absurdist comedy parody western made in Japan about a lady who is in pursuit of the perfect ramen recipe. I think you're thinking of House? (laughs) No. No. The Japanese movie House? No, Where sometimes the house is a cat. John, I think you're thinking of Deathbed, the bed that eats. Uh, The bed that eats people or just the bed that eats? Because I got to be honest, the bed that eats, way less threatening. I have a lot of food that I can throw at a bed. Look, we're all familiar with the Patton. We're all familiar with the Patton Oswalt bit about Deathbed, the bed that eats people. Yeah, Patton pending. But the the movie is actually called Deathbed, the bed that eats. It does not have people in the title. I, if I ever meet Pat Oswalt in person, I will loudly tell him this to his face <laughs> and then drop to my knees and beg him to forgive me. Uh, and he'll say, not again, record scratch. You're probably wondering how I got in this situation. <laughs> I can only hope. I can only hope. Uh, so anyways, Kill Bill begins, yes, with the old Klingon proverb, revenge is a dish best served cold. Uh, a line that I never heard Gowron say, and now I'm very upset about it. Um, <laughs> is he the Christopher Lloyd Klingon? No, Gowron is like the crazy eyes, like use like leader uh, Klingon from uh, Next Gen. No, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. He's the one that got, that got them big eyes. <laughs> uh, anyways. Uh, and then we uh, are treated to this, uh, the treated. Uh, we are subjected to <laughs> yeah, the sound and treat. then sight. Yeah, we are subjected to the sound and then the sight of Uma Thurman in black and white, covered in blood, as uh, uh, an, uh, uh, an unseen figure speaks to her. Uh, we can tell that he is Bill, the titular Bill, who will be killed because he's got a hanky that he wipes the blood off her face. What says Bill on it? And that's also, you, you can't fool me, David Carradine. I seen Kung Fu. I know exactly what you sound like, idiot. Yeah, we, we, we watched Death Race 2000. Like, we know what <laughs> Frankenstein is in this movie. Does so anybody know is... if he actually filmed any scenes for this? Or did he just do ADR and some stunt double did his uh, No, so this hands. is a problem... This is a problem that I do have with the way that this movie withholds information. It doesn't make any sense because it was filmed all in one go, a Lord of the Rings style, uh, and it was meant to be one, like, three and a half to four hour movie. And that's how it was actually premiered at Cannes Film Festival as just one movie. But then uh, sex monster Harvey Weinstein was like, and his <laughs> was heard round the world much yeah. like the death of superman and it splits the movie in twain uh, uh so knowing that going in it is deeply frustrating to me that like if this was all one movie why can't we just know that her name is beatrix right up front why is it a stupid like withholding mystery box that we don't find out until a third of the way through the second movie because this yeah. movie's really really bad <laughs> It's the answer to that question. I will disagree with you on that, Patrick. Oh, we will I, come I, to blows. I will, if only I will we were in the same room. Uh, this is going to be great. I can't wait. <laughs> That's true. We'll do, we'll do like how the movie does, and we'll both agree to meet at a specific place at a specific time to have a specific fight, and then just never do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. True. 
Um, also, I want to say one of the most heartening pieces of news that came out since the last time we recorded was that uh, sex monster Harvey Weinstein has gone blind in prison <laughs> and is like confined to a wheelchair or something like that. Uh, gave me so much joy to know that that piece of shit is slowly dying. Man, he's got a big, big his name on the front of the credits on this one, though. I noticed that when I turned it on. Yeah, like, cool. well... Yeah. It was the early 2000s. Yeah. Yeah. If it was 1992 to like 2000, whatever, eight before Miramax died and they started the Weinstein Company, like his name's fucking everywhere. Yeah, no lie. He won't let you forget. Also, speaking of a movie made in 2003, definitely put the closed captions on because the sound balancing is still garbage. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't find that to be as big of a problem, but I definitely agree with you. I think that that is more a symptom of the fact that Uma Thurman delivers every line as if she is doing a movie trailer. Yeah, I mean, I missed a little bit in the opening, but it wasn't until uh, Daryl Hannah shows up in the hospital where I was like, nope, fuck it, I gotta put the closed captioning on. There's no way sure. I'm, gonna, I'm I'm just missing shit. Well, Quentin Tarantino, especially in this movie, but in his, a lot of his movies, he loves Foley work. Everything yeah. in the world has its own sound, and it's loud as shit, and super distinct. So, like, every footstep is different and, like, deafening. Every time somebody looks at a knife, it goes shink. Like, everything in the movie has its own sound effect. And I actually kind of appreciate it for this movie especially, because it is very much a throwback to, like, old Hong Kong kung fu movies. However, uh, but and now we'll a... get... Go ahead. Oh, no, I was to say, we'll get to my feelings on on Quentin Tarantino's total weebness at some point. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, how could you not? Yeah. <laughs> no, there's... Like, uh, it's, it borders on racist sometimes. And a lot of Ooh. other things. <laughs> I would I would argue that, yeah, it definitely, it absolutely hits the realm of uh, exoticism. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it, it, there is a very fine line between out-and-out racism. Yeah. Oh, I mean, that's, I kind of think, the worst part about it is it's supposed to be like an homage of exploitation films, but it's also still all those stereotypes played for the exact same reasons they were in the 70s. So well, it's not actually, really an homage, it just is an exploitation film. Yeah, I was I was talking to my wife about this last night because we watched it together, because we're adorable. <laughs> Hashtag squad goals. Am I using that right? Probably I not. I don't think so. I don't know. I don't know, but I can see I can see your wife in the background giving yep. you the dirtiest look. I know, right? Which is why I am not looking <laughs> into the camera. <laughs> uh, but we talked about how yeah, like, yeah, Patrick, uh, you are absolutely correct in that assessment that it is a reflection of what it must have been like to grow up in the the 60s and 70s and see this stuff on television with very cheap American dubs. So it's not like a reflection of what the culture that produced those movies would have valued about those movies. It is a reflection of the distortion that we got in the States before we actually like put effort into localizing this stuff with a little more care. So it does create this like bizarro funhouse mirror of like it's the reason why people think that the first godzilla movie the like black and white one like oh i can't take it seriously at all it's so goofy it's got raymond burr (laughs) it's like friends that's the bad version that y'all saw what are you doing yeah yeah. like those special effects were on point in that movie when it came out at that the original yeah. yeah the original 1950s godzilla is still like a legit terrifying movie with one of the best scores like in film history. Yeah. And like, yes, it's a man in a rubber suit 
But, like, you have to understand at the time, like, nobody had seen anything like that before done in such a dark, terrifying manner. And it's all about, you know, and it takes place in a country that, like, literally just a little more than a decade before had had nuclear fire rain down upon it. Right. So uh, I guess what we're saying is you got a lot to answer for, Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, I apologize mean, for Hiroshima. I mean, I, I'll, he's got he does have some things to apologize for, but we'll we don't have to talk about that right now. We'll get to, we'll get to him. <laughs> this is just the first thing he needs to apologize for. <laughs> yeah. Sure. So, anyways, uh, Bill gives this very long monologue, as all characters in Quentin Tarantino movies do, where he. It's the same format in all his movies where a guy says, you probably think I'm this thing, but now I'm going to say a bunch of words. And by the end of it, I'm going to say I'm the opposite of this thing. And then she's like, uh, don't you know what's your big? And then he shoots her in the head. Uh, and then, uh, we get credits with that, uh, uh, that Bang Bang song. I believe that's what Nancy Sinatra. That's the correct I want to say it's Nancy Sinatra. Yep. Yeah. Definitely. Are you sure it's not... You sure it's not Frank Jr.? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's it's actually Stallone's brother that has a lounge oh. singing career. Oh, yeah. good old Frankie. Frankie Stallone. Yeah. Frank Stallone. Yep. Good guy. Good singing. He's uh, not. He's absolutely no. not. Oh, but not. I do. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, he is. So imagine the worst uh, opinion that Sylvester Stallone has ever said out loud. Now imagine that same human being, but with no PR team telling him to reel it in. You got yourself yeah. a Frank Stallone there, baby. Yikes. Uh, I love that, 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 that news broke that Sylvester Stallone joined Mar-a-Lago and Sylvester Stallone had to immediately come back and be like, Oh, no, I didn't. I didn't join Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> that was my brother. Frank. I think that honestly, Frank Stallone doesn't exist, and he is simply Sylvester Stallone's outlet for all of his like inner dirt bag. Nice. I've well, never John, seen them in the same room at the same time. I have. It was uh, at the premiere of the movie Staying Alive, which Sylvester <laughs> Sylvester Stallone directed for some reason, and Frank Stallone had the big hit song on the soundtrack of. I'm oh. going to say cocaine had a lot to do with all of those decisions. Staying Alive, the movie about the airplane crash? Uh, uh, no, that's just called Alive. Alive. Yeah, no, Staying Alive, the sequel to Saturday, Saturday Night, Night Fever. Fever. Where now Ooh. John Travolta's character uh, uh, is now on Broadway trying to make it as like a dancer. <laughs> it it completely ignores the fact. It completely ignores the fact that Saturday Night Fever is not a movie about dancing at all. It's about dirtbag kids in fucking New York who are yeah. big pieces of shit and trying to escape their big piece of shit lives. But then the second movie is just like, that's my Sylvester Stallone and his pitch to Hollywood for staying alive. Anyways, bang, bang. He shot me down. Yada, yada. And we are now uh, at chapter, uh, was it chapter two, chapter one? So the, this is no, the it's first. chapter two. It's because... chapter one. The name of the chapter is the number two. And I will say yes. that the first time seeing this in theaters, this was the first Tarantino movie to be broken up into chapters, which is why they're called volumes one and two, because they are a collection of chapters. Um, but the first time seeing this in the movie theater, I definitely got a little like, anxious of just like wait a minute chapter one two oh, i don't know about this oh, tarantino you rule breaking maverick 
Well, luckily like we a, got inculcated with Dunkirk last week with title cards that don't necessarily mean anything. <laughs> that's true. I was ready. Also, like, if you've seen any of the previous Tarantino movies before this, like, we know for a fact he's not a fan of like linear narratives. Correct. Yeah, I think sure. his most linear at that point was Jackie Brown, and even yeah. that when they're doing like the heist switch off at the end, it is very like. Uh, Brian De Palma esque of like split screens and like cutting between different time frames. Absolutely, that was something I was actually thinking about today after watching this movie again. Was that Tarantino? You know, like one of the big charges that people level at Tarantino is that he is, uh, he's like a like a pastiche artist. You know, he takes yeah sequel his, to the Disaster Artist. Yes, like he takes his inspirations from movies and you know the the old he worked in a video store thing. He's you know blah blah blah. Uh, but he's he's very much like a like an evolved Brian De Palma, whereas Brian De Palma only stole from Hitchcock. Tarantino evolved to steal from whoever he wanted. Unlike Brian De Palma, Tarantino has his own style and was able to take those influences and run them through his weird coke brain and <laughs> make them his own. God, I'm trying to remember what celebrity it was, but they said. That uh, I guess they must have been dating uh, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson at the time. And she said she knew it was time to break up or get divorced or whatever their relationship was after she was trapped in a private screening room with Paul Thomas Anderson and Quentin Tarantino high out of their minds on cocaine, just talking about movies for three hours. That is (laughs) like, that's the thing. I, I think I would love that for like, like a good hour. I would like it in podcast form where I can pause and walk away from it. But to be trapped in that is like Jean-Paul Lassart, you were wrong. Hell is exactly two other people. It's these specific two other people high on cocaine talking about movies for three hours. Uh, so, yeah. So now we are uh, at, at chapter one, the number two. Uh, and uh, we are introduced to the pussy wagon. Uh, bright yellow. Boy, we sure are. This is a joke that the movie never gets tired of telling. It's a, a bright yellow Chevy Silverado truck with in big pink letters says Pussy Wagon on the side and on the back and on the keychain. Yeah. And yeah, um, the, the movie never uh, doesn't find this to be hilarious. Right. It so is, much so that later record, on in the movie. Never hilarious. <laughs> Correct. I absolutely agree with you. It was funny in high school the first time you see the reveal of the fact that it says that on the back. But later on in the movie, it reveals it again as if the audience has, like, forgotten this. And then it cuts back and forth between the keychain and the car and the keychain again. And Uma Thurman gives a, like, only in New York kind of look to the camera. And it's just like, buddy, we, you, are, you already gave us this punchline. What are you doing? Uh, so, yeah, so uh, the pussy wagon pulls up to a very serene suburban house and outsteps Uma Thurman, uh, the star of our film, obviously. She plays Beep! Beatrix uh, Kiddo. She plays Beatrice Kiddo. <laughs> She'll be credited it as The Bride. Like, I get the idea of, like, giving her, like, a cool, like, oh, we don't know her name, but then... Just have your characters talk around her name until you're ready to, like, reveal it for no well, reason. actually, in this very scene, like, within three seconds, we're going to give her her name. She's the Black Mamba. 
Exactly. Yeah. She's so, actually like, got too many names. Right. Yeah. Uh, so she uh, walks up to this door, rings the doorbell. Vivica A. Fox, uh, a.k.a. Uh, Dr. or uh, a.k.a. Jeannie Bell, a.k.a. Vernita Green, a.k.a. Uh, Copperhead. Uh, Copperhead. <laughs> Everyone's got too many goddamn names in this mm. movie. True. Uh, yeah, she answers, this is a joke only for the Jonathan Rooney Taylors on this podcast. But gee, she's like a Hideo Kojima character, am I right, fellas? This guy knows what I'm talking about. I'm pointing to myself. I'm glad somebody's <laughs> laughing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't recall laughing. <laughs> so she, uh, uh, Vivica A. Fox, opens the door, and she is uh, she is greeted with a swift kick to the punch to the face. Uh, and yeah, what I will follows say, is a is a pretty sweet uh, fight scene. For my I money, like, this is the best fight sequence in the movie. I will probably disagree with you on that, but I do understand where you're coming from on that. It is a very like grounded street brawl kind of fight where you do feel kind of realistically a lot of the hits. And I will say something sort of broadly about the fights in this movie. It is a fight movie. Uh, and the fights in this movie, if you like, if you look at like hit for hit, there's not a lot of like spectacular Kung Fu going on in this movie, but like, good God, the way it's shot is so fun. And it like, I'm going to disagree with movie, you on that later, but go ahead. We will fight. Uh, I will say, like, in, in comparison to, like, modern action movies where it's just like, all right, medium shot where they're both in frame, cut to an insert of a slow motion punch almost hitting a person, and then they dodge it, and then back to proscenium, everyone's in frame. Like, I, I'm reminded a lot of, like, the uh, the the airport scene in uh, Captain America's Civil War where, like, the fight is very cool, but it is filmed very boringly. Sure. And at least with these fights, there is a lot of camera movement. There is a lot of, like, very energetic cutting to it. And there is a very clear, like, these are two human beings, obviously stunt doubles in a lot of sequences, but, like, they are two human beings doing human being actions to and against each other. Yes. And this this first fight scene between uh, the bride and, and Copperhead is again, I, I yeah. This is probably my. I think this is my favorite. Just like straight up fight in the movie because it is. It's down. It's dirty. You feel every hit. I love the way it's shot. It's super kinetic. Um, and he makes. Oh, and really, they fuck up the environment, which yeah. is something and I am always delighted. A suburban home, which is nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. It 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 just works real well, like real strong. Um. Anyways, they fight for a while. They smash some shit. They stab some shit. They kick some shit. They plates and tables and all that stuff. And then a school as they uh, end up in a, a knifey standoff, a school bus pulls up outside. Oh, I see you've played knifey standoff before. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> Simpsons reference. We got there. A uh, a school bus pulls up outside, and uh, uh, Vernita Green, Jeannie Bell, Copperhead, Vivica A. Fox looks outside and is like. Oh no, clearly this is a person I know. Oh, it's my little girl's running up. And Uma Thurman like backs off and they put their knives away. And this little girl comes in and she's like, Oh, what happened? She's like, Your stupid dog broke the whole house. Now go upstairs. I, I do love that. I don't know if you guys have similar experiences of your parents clearly lying to you about something. And uh, everybody knows that it's clearly a lie, but you're like, You know what? I'm just going to go to my room. It's fine. <laughs> you don't have yeah. any choice, Sam. 
Yeah, literally every day, buddy. <laughs> also, tough break. This girl gets off the school bus and then tells us she's four. That's brutal. They're just being sent to like pre-pre-K. On her own. I know. Yeah. True. It's rough. True. Well, I mean, I like I had half day kindergarten, I think, when I was four. Uh, and yeah, we would get on and off the school bus for that. But I also, like the character in this movie, my bus stop was literally right in front of my house. Oh, nice. Sure. Uh, so she uh, she goes upstairs. Uh, Copperhead is like, do you want some coffee? And they're like, yeah, okay. So they Again, it's turned- that Tarantino thing of just like, they're like larger than life comic book characters, but they also are real people too. Yeah, so they, they adjourn to the kitchen. Uh, and this is where we get like a little bit of an info dump scene. Uh, we get she- some voiceover. Yeah, there's a... Well, that's, I think, after the death. Well, right now we have some voiceover of Uma Thurman saying, like, her name is Mrs. Bell, but when I knew her, she was Vivica A. Fox, because I can't keep any of these names straight. This is where we get all the names. Um, (laughs) And we find out that they were all part of the Deadly Viper Assassination Squad, although that actually comes later. Yeah. Uh, she starts making some cereal. The cereal is called Kaboom. No guesses if that's going to pay off in literally 40 <laughs> seconds. Well, I will say this was before we were all like trained uh, when we had our minds poisoned by fucking like honest trailers and cinema sense bullshit. Like no one in the theater would have read the name of that cereal. Oh, absolutely. No, sure. for sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we we. It, we didn't live it. This is a pre-Marvel world where we weren't all trained to hunt for Easter eggs in literally yeah. every frame of every movie. So, so no, things could be right. like delightful surprises. Exactly. So uh, they have a little uh, a little talky talk where we find this out. This is where they decide like, all right, we'll have a knife fight later at a different location. Nah, let's just resolve it now. I do. Yes. I w- it's worth pointing out, though, that they're going to meet, and it's important in their little setup that they're going to be in their all-black ninja clothes. They're even going to put her hair in a black stocking. But they're going to meet at 2 o'clock in the morning at a Little League field, where presumably the game lights will be on. Yeah. I've never seen a Little League field where they're dark at night. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I mean, you can see why this plan falls apart almost immediately. <laughs> Yeah, Vivica A. Fox tries to uh, tries to get Uma Thurman to back off of murdering her with, uh, because she's got a kid, and she's like, "No, no, no, that's not going to work. Not after what you did to me. Revenge is the dish best served with a knife in the face." Uh, in this case, because these people all killed her and her unborn child, so she thinks. So she's out for revenge. So uh, Vivica A. Fox is like, I gotta get this cereal. And then like takes a shot. Like there's a gun hidden in the cereal box. Blasts out the back. Misses. I will say that uh, there are two details that I noticed this time watching it that I hadn't noticed before that I really enjoy, which is there are two cereal boxes in the kitchen. There's one just on the kitchen counter. And then there's one above the stove. And the one above the stove is the one that's got the gun in it. That's just very clever. Like, yeah, if you're going to put a gun in a cereal box and you've got a four-year-old, you put it out of that four-year-old's reach. That's pretty clever. What's not clever and really took me out of the scene this time was there is, for some reason, a power outlet above the doorframe in this (laughs) kitchen where (laughs) no one could conveniently reach it. Yeah. I could not figure it out, and I literally spent the entire rest of the scene just trying to, like mind palace different solutions of like maybe if there's like a vacuum cleaner that you need to be able to vacuum (laughs) the ceiling no Uh, 
my guess is that that house had fluorescent lighting at some point because it might have been built in the 60s or 70s when fluorescent lighting became a huge thing. And those had to be plugged in at all times. And you wouldn't plug it into a, a floor outlet. You'd have an outlet up top so it plugs up the thing. I only mention this is because I've been like looking at a lot of condos recently like uh, uh, on, on Redfin and Zillow and stuff. Man, you will see some bananas stuff I've just seen trolling some... those real estate postings. Oh my postings. god. But like I found multiple places where the chief lighting is fluorescent lights. And they're like <laughs> all like plugged into like yeah like outlets at the ceiling. What Here's the thing I love on Redfin and Zillow. It's like these are people that are desperately trying to sell their home to make some money so they can buy a new home and move on. And you would think you would do everything in your power to make your home look as good as humanly possible. Like, for instance, putting all of the clothing away (laughs) instead of just on the floor. Or having your lights on when you take the pictures. (laughs) So many of these places, you're just like, this is a two-bedroom, two-bath in this neighborhood. And it's like, oh, I can't tell because all the pictures are shot at a Dutch angle in the complete dark. (laughs) This one has a thumb over it. Yeah, right? I mean, <sighs> goddamn. Solid and then sometimes, sometimes you find a really nice place, and you're like, wow, why is this place only $130,000? That doesn't seem right. And then you like find out where it is, and the, you see the rest of the building and other units in the building, and you're like, oh, that's why. These dummies decided to upgrade this one unit in this one terrible building, <laughs> and now they can't sell it, and they've been dropping the price for two years. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, they thought that the Rat King was going to come live in their building and they had to spruce <laughs> up the unit. Anyways. But then they found out that Rat King was just a ball of rats. It wasn't a regal man in charge of the Dominion of Rat. Uh, John, we all know that the Rat King is a human man who wears mummy bandages over most of his body and fights the Ninja Turtles. Ooh, that's I true. That's right. I, I often confuse him with the Mighty Mighty Boston song, uh, The Rascal King. <laughs> sure. He'll do it again. Yeah, no, that's fair. Don't think he won't. Uh, so anyways, the she fires her gun at Beatrix Kiddo, and in one of my favorite moves in this movie, Beatrix drops her coffee cup, kicks it to distract Vivica A. Fox, it explodes on the wall, and then throws a knife right through her goddamn chest. Right into the chest, And of yeah. course, now is the time that they've decided to do yard work right outside my apartment, so apologies, listeners. <laughs> that was yeah, I thought it was weird that Quentin Tarantino decided that this would be the time to start doing yard work in front of your apartment. Quentin but you Tarantino know what? Is He's out a there. rascal rule breaker. He's out there right now cutting down branches, and he's got an eight ball. It is crazy (laughs) but weirdly enough it's a magic eight ball and he keeps trying to ask it what his last movie is gonna be and it just keeps saying come back later he also keeps looking into the garden unit beneath us to see if he can catch some feet buddy feet play a vital role in the next sequence of events buddy feet play a vital role in all Quentin Tarantino movies but I think this is the first one where it's not just like uh, a cinematography choice where it is literally like in the text of the movie that feet are very important that's true yeah I would say Jackie Brown is the first one where 
He's really like, look at this fucking foot. <laughs> like, there's so many close-ups of Bridget Fonda's feet in that movie, and he's just like, look at those fucking toes. I can't wait to get them fucking toes. Let's be Quentin Tarantino. Okay, here's the deal. I got Quentin. Uh, <laughs> that's Martin Scorsese, and I don't know what it is. I don't know. He's just a fucking don't do feet. It, man. He likes don't do feet. it. <laughs> You'll never come back. You'll go bust the abyss. <laughs> yeah, you never go, never go full Tarantino. So, anyways. Uh, she she kills Vivica Fox, and then the little kid. Oh no, the little kid saw her mom die, and this is the setup for a hypothetical Kill Bill three that may happen or may not happen. Is it he's when been the little very, girl goes to kill her? Yeah, he's been very cagey about it uh, over his career. For a long time, it was it will happen in ten years. Then it was ah eh, might not happen. Then it was ah eh, might happen. And like I think the last Riz is like we've got an idea for a story so who knows yeah i think for uh, like right off the heels of the movie he was saying it's definitely happening we're just gonna wait for all the actors to age up uh then the shit of him like falling out with uma thurman over a very unsafe work environment for one of her stunt scenes wherein she like injured her neck came out uh and so she was like I ain't fucking doing that. Absolutely not. Uh, yeah. And then most recently, he has, like, made amends, and he gave her the, the like, footage that was shot on that day from, from the insurance company uh, so that she could have it, so that she could actually, like, get restitution from the producers on the movie. Uh, I'm assuming by that, that's code for, like, Harvey and Bob Weinstein. Sure, I think Lawrence Bender as well. Yeah, but I, only my understanding... Because isn't this movie, like... 20 years old. <laughs> Correct. Uh, this was recently within the last couple of years. It yeah. seems like Tarantino is making a genuine effort to be like less of a shitbag and like trying to make amends for the like in comparison to other people who have worked on this movie, Ugh. a lower level of monsterdom sure. that he is. He seems to actively be trying to like make restitutions for yeah. just like Kevin Smith has done. Uh, with his movies that he produced with with the Weinsteins. Yeah. Uh, so anyways, uh, she tells the little girl, like, hey, I didn't mean to kill your mom in front of you. If you feel shitty about it later on, I'll be waiting. Kill Bill 3. Um, <laughs> Coming to an Oculus Rift near you, I guess. <laughs> right. Uh, and then she uh, leaves. She gets in the pussy wagon, and then we get a, a narration from. We get Sonny uh, Chiba. Yeah, Sonny Chiba, who will show the up a little Street bit Fighter later. himself. He'll show up a little later, and it's just like a cool little like fucking warriors are fucking warriors, and they'll kill God or Buddha or whoever gets in their fucking way. Yeah, and I will say that this is this is another issue that I have tonally with the movie, which is. Everything is done plot-wise to bend over backwards so that any violence that's presented in the movie can be fun for the audience. Ooh. And I think it... Is that true? I think it, it, it works more often than it doesn't. You do we'll know get what scene is next, right? I was going to say, we'll get to the big part where it super doesn't work in a minute. Okay. Um, but it's clear that, like, tonally, it's like... I didn't think a whole lot about making this movie. You shouldn't think a whole lot about enjoying this movie, except for when it's deadly serious about the, the gray areas of revenge, which, might I add, is very cool and enjoyable to watch. But you ever think about how it hurts everyone involved? But you shouldn't think about how it hurts everyone involved, because it's super fun, and look how gory it is. But those gores, 
That happened to human real people with complex lives. Morality truly is complex, and I am wise for noticing it. Except that it's a big comic book movie, and you should just have fun. I, yeah, I, I don't necessarily disagree with you, but that's coming from a place for me, because the fight sequences are such fucking trash. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so the next scene is we uh, is chapter two, the blood spattered bride, and we go all the way back now to sort of the the beginning ish. Uh, we get a really fun uh, Michael Parks and Son scene that I will always enjoy. Yeah, so Michael Parks plays uh, is he a sheriff, sheriff Earl, or is he a ranger? I believe he's still a sheriff, <laughs> sheriff. in this one. Yeah, I think yeah. he's a sheriff. So he plays Earl McGraw, a character that also appears in... Uh, Dusk Till Dawn. Yeah, and both of the Grindhouse movies. Yeah. He is the father of Marley Shelton's character in Planet Terror. He is just... He's one of the cops investigating the uh, uh, stuntman Mike murders in, yeah. in, 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 in uh, Death, Death Proof. Proof. And, yeah, in, and again, like pre-Marvel Universe, this was actually a whole lot of fun for high school me to keep track of all this stupid inane bullshit. <laughs> yes, yeah. So Michael Parks... Uh, the existence of Michael Parks in this movie means that Kill Bill and From Dust Till Dawn both take place in the same universe, which means that vampires are real in the Kill Bill movies, and we could conceivably have a movie where the bride kills vampires. It's not too late. He's still got one movie left. That's true. Yeah, but I heard uh, he's still got like four more repentances to go. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so yeah, we go back, uh, we're at the crime scene in El Paso, Texas at the Little Chapel. I think an incredible piece of, I love everything about Michael Parks' character and the way it's communicated to the audience, but the character beat that I love the most is we get a POV shot of him behind the wheel driving up to the chapel, and he has five different tinted sunglasses (laughs) on his dash, and they're all lined up. Uh, there's a shot later on too that I, I've always loved where he's like looking down at the body of the bride and he's, it's a POV shot through his eyes, through his tinted green sunglasses. And then he like pulls them off and like in, in camera, there's like, it changes the from green tint to regular tint. Uh, and it's just like a fun, like goofy, like film scoot student thing that, yeah. that I love so much. Right, and we're about to get into, in the next couple of scenes, uh, a lot of uh, Tarantino's failings as a filmmaker. But I will say off the top, I think one of his strengths is he is very good at sketching out characters who don't have a lot of screen time, but you feel a lot of character from them. And I think it's just from little bits like this of like wearing green tinted sunglasses and like the way that he talks to it, the way that his son does not have a name He's just <laughs> son number one, like speaks volumes about the relationship that they have with each other. Absolutely true. Um, so, yeah, so they go in there. There's the bride, uh, she, the entire wedding party and, and the piano player and the priest. Everyone's dead. The, absolute... <laughs> the pastor, the pastor's wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an absolute massacre. And um, I have committed just about every line of this to memory because I fucking love it. It's, this, this wasn't the work of no squirrely amateur. This was a salty dog. <laughs> Just, uh, oh, it's so stupid and great. They they uh, check on her body, and she, like, coughs up blood. It turns out she is not dead. Beatrix Kiddo has survived. Uh, and then she wakes up, 
Uh, well, in... cut to uh, that whistling song that you have heard That's in right. countless other fucking movies and TV shows. Yeah, and then a 50-foot-tall woman walking through a hospital. <laughs> <laughs> Which I really like that we... This is twice in the movie we are going to see an assassin go into a bathroom to change into basically what she was already wearing, but yeah. a little different. Yeah. yeah. I also thought during the scene, I was like, why didn't she just come in in the nurse's clothes? Like, Right? <laughs> well, it's like, it's the same reason that you don't forge an artist's signature on a forgery painting, because then they get you twice for forgery. <laughs> yeah. If she walks through the front door as a nurse, then they got her twice. Yeah. It's double jeopardy. It was not only impersonating a nurse in the hospital, but also in the hospital vestibule. Correct, which are two different jurisdictions. I I think it's the Rangers have jurisdiction in the vestibule, but the like local sheriff has jurisdiction within the actual hospital itself. That's correct. And in hospital rooms, it's regular local PD. And if you're in the basement, if you're in the basement, that's straight up FBI shit right there. True fact. Also, for some reason, they're not called counties. They're called wards, but only in the hospitals. Only in the hospital. Yes. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, we're introduced to the character L. Driver. Uh, also California Mountain Snake, a.k.a. Daryl Hannah, a.k.a. Tris from Blade Runner. Oh, she's and so yeah, tall. Yeah, and Splash. Splash and, from Splash. Yeah, she's yeah, Splash, she's from Splash, Splash from Splash. Uh, so Splash walks in. She's got an eye patch on. That's pretty cool, I guess. Um, I like she's it. got a white eye patch, and then she disguises herself as a nurse, and she has a red cross eye patch. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I think Which that's, is, a, that's a great touch. I love it. Yeah, it, it's a detail that I thoroughly enjoy. I also like her. She's wearing a raincoat that doesn't have any buttons or belts, but it has buttons and belts embroidered onto the fabric. Yeah, it's like drawn on. It's like a tuxedo yeah. shirt. Yeah. Yeah. It's I a love cool a good jacket. tuxedo shirt. It's a cool jacket. So she comes in. There's whistling. She walks into Beatrix Kiddo's room. She is about to uh, put some sort of red goo into her IV. Yeah, it's her. a carnage goo. She's going to turn her into a carnage. She's going to have to fight Venom. Oh, okay. Interesting. Oh, fancy. <clears throat> it's going to be they a They don't good get time. into a, a lot yeah. in the text of the movie, but if you follow the clues, That's Mr. Policeman, okay. I gave you all the clues. Yeah, so she she has like a little bit of a speech where she's just like, you know, I don't like you, but I respect you, and I'm going to let you die with dignity, and you're fucking blah, blah, blah. And just as she's about to inject her, she gets a phone call on her. On the biggest goddamn <laughs> yeah. phone. Comically large cell phone. Yeah. Even in the early 2000s, this was anachronistic of cell oh, yeah. phones. The motor, yeah, yeah th- there was already well, tiny Nokia, and the, I believe the Razor already existed at this it's, point. It's a full-on yeah. brick phone, and it has the flip out from like an o- a old school school original series star trek communicator like it's oh, enormous yeah. you, you pull out the antenna on the yeah, top yeah yeah it's like an Beautiful. army sat phone yeah yeah it's the phone that michael douglas has in the first wall street movie <laughs> yeah <laughs> so she gets a phone call uh from bill and he's like hey real heads up uh how's she doing she's doing okay great so you're not gonna kill her you're gonna come home and yep. she does not take this well she screams and she yells and she's very upset. Um, but basically the idea being she's a warrior. She deserves to, if she already survived being beaten up and then shot in the head, she deserves a chance to rest and then possibly wake up. And if she wakes up, they'll handle it then. Uh, yeah, and we also get a little bit of putting two and two together of like, oh, it's Bill's baby. We know from the beginning of the movie. But in this part of the movie, he's clearly in a relationship with L Driver. So like you can see like, oh, there's like a... 
like ex-girlfriend kind of thing going on yes. between uh, yeah. like one of the reasons that L probably doesn't have a whole lot of uh, love for Beatrice Kiddo is because of that like fallen out over Bill. I'm pretty sure and I mean maybe with the exception of Vivica Fox but the way the movie played out to me I think it was implied that Bill had slept with every single woman on screen. Yeah, he is a real gross abuser. Yes, oh, David no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no, he definitely, yeah, he slept with everybody but his brother Bud, for sure. Well, we don't know that for sure. Oh, you're right. That's true. That's true. Gave him a little of the old I... Brad Renfro from Bully. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. Like, of all the references. Deep, I was going to say, good deep cut, but also gross. Hey, you made me watch this goddamn movie. <laughs> That mind is in a sewer. Hey, it could have been worse, Patrick. We could have watched Bully. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Luckily, like that one doesn't even pretend to be an action movie, so I feel like we're safe. That's true. So, oh, so so the unless we watch of... it on the the anniversary of Road to Wellville, our annual non-action <laughs> watching. Uh, so years ago at the Toronto Film Festival, when I was in college, probably around this time-ish. Um, uh, Larry Clark, the guy who directed Bully and who also directed Kids. Had okay. his, his new movie playing at the Toronto Film Festival. It's called Ken Park. And uh, somehow my roommate and I got tickets to go to one of the gala screenings of this in the middle of the day. It is, to this day, the worst movie I've ever seen in a movie theater. <laughs> Damn. Uh, with, a, with a crowd of people who were desperate to see the next revolutionary work by weird countercultural maverick Larry Clark. Uh, and instead what they got was a movie that opens with like a 15-year-old kid performing cunnilingus on a 40-year-old woman. Then in the middle, uh, a guy watching women's tennis and masturbating to completion, and you see all of it, uh, and then ends with a threesome between these two, like like three 16-year-old kids, basically. Uh, and then in the middle of it, people just are like, oh, no, fucking life's hard, I guess. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, he's a terrible filmmaker. He warned you with kids. Yeah. Yeah. No, you can't that... watch the movie Kids and be like, hmm, maybe tone it down on the shirtless teenagers, friend. Yeah, no, yeah that... any 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 redeeming qualities kids might have is the work of Harmony Corinne. Uh, yeah. And, he, and I'll even say it like, I don't even think Harmony Corinne's all that great. I have a soft spot for Spring Breakers, but I that's was going to say it. he did exactly one inarguably very good movie, and everything else has just been like edgy teenage bullshit. Is Spring Breakers, is that Franco? James that's Franco, maybe. Yeah. Uh, I bet that's not an inarguably good movie, John. <laughs> <laughs> when I when I saw Spring yeah, yeah. I mean like ethically, you're correct. Yes, correct. <laughs> when I saw Spring Breakers when it was over, I like sat there in silence for like 20 minutes and then afterwards I was like, I'm not sure if this is the worst movie I've ever seen or if it's the best movie I've ever seen. <laughs> Like it might be like a, a a a work of staggering genius. It also might be the stupidest thing ever committed to film. But James Franco plays, in essence, Riff Raff, the Hell shitty yeah. Florida like freestyle rapper, and he gives uh, an amazingly committed performance. I will say that. Yeah. Uh, speaking of amazingly committed performances, nice segue, uh, we get a scene of Uma Thurman has been left to the hospital to be in her coma. Uh, a mosquito lands on her and starts biting up some blood. And we get what I think is a really stellar performance of her waking up, realizing where she is, 
realizing she has a metal plate in her head like the mom from Pete and Pete, and she'll get yep. some Mexican radio on it during yeah. their road trips. Uh, whoa, and then realizing whoa. that Mexican radio. radio. Uh, and then realizing that her baby is gone. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then, and I, yeah, I think that this is a really affecting performance. I think that this is very good. It's also the only, I think, part of the movie where they're not playing it as like this heightened kung fu movie world. Like right. it's the one scene in the movie where she's allowed to like really play like a regular grounded human being dealing with a very serious like emotional thing. And if we would just skip the next 20 minutes of movie, yeah. oh, it so, would be a much this better is movie. so disgusting. <laughs> so like this is one of the things I wanted to bring up, up about the movie and I think this is a thing that kind of unfortunately happens in a lot of it happens in a lot of movies but it happens in a lot of Tarantino movies. Which Agreed is on both counts. His movies a lot of times hinge on incredible, disgusting violence, either physical or sexual or both, done to women as like a catalyst in them, uh, and like it's just like it's 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 gross. It's what's, just gross. What's even worse about this is it's not even a catalyst like in the Crow, where it's like what the whole plot really hinges on. We already have a setup for her brutal yeah. revenge for everything that's been done wrong. Right. We just need her to leave. And instead, we yes. find out she's been systematically raped by random men for four years in the hospital. At 75 bucks a pop. And Content that's an warning, I guess. And that's to justify what? Killing a yeah. random guy in an orderly? It has nothing yeah. to do with anything. It exists merely to make me disgusted with it, and that makes it like doubly more disgusting. Yes, I fully agree. And there's also a huge problem of... This is obviously less of a problem than just the whole thing being gross. Uh, but there's also what, like, uh, I believe Rob Schraub and Dan Harmon call the Monopoly Man problem of, like, violence is visited upon this gross, disgusting, horrible orderly. And then after she kills him, she gets out the car keys and he's got the pussy wagon. Mm-hmm. And she looks at the keychain and she's just like, pussy wagon, you fucker. And then, like, hits him's dead body one more time. And it's like... You made that happen, filmmaker. Like, yeah. you went out for Ace Ventura 2, and you found a man who looked like the Monopoly Man. You dressed him in the clothes of the Monopoly Man so that Jim Carrey could come by and say, Look, everybody, it's the Monopoly Man. And it's just like, I don't understand your weird dig of just like, And he drives a pussy wagon. What a gross guy. Yeah, he's a gross guy that you made up <laughs> for this movie. <laughs> right. You're a gross gross guy. That's a product (laughs) of your imagination. And you still chose to put that on film. Like, I know we all have bad thoughts, but you made this into (laughs) art. And like, I was, I was trying to think of, I was trying to parse this as I was watching it this morning. And I was like, you know, there's, there's a part of me that like, you know, this, this whole movie like exists because Quentin Tarantino and Uma Thurman came up with this character and they workshopped it like between the two of them relentlessly. And so like part of me was like, okay, so at least Uma Thurman was aware of everything that was going to be going on through the course of this movie. She knew the character she was going to be playing and the story of this character. She may have even helped shape that story at the same time. It just like, yeah, that like, Having having the her team turn on her, beat her to death, half to death, and then shoot her in the head was enough. Bringing like the whole like fucking buck who likes to fuck bullshit in there is just like it's like the 
it's the for me in a movie that I, I in two movies that I actually really like. It's like a, a just a gigantic fucking slap in the face and like black eye on these movies. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also I like kind of this is an encapsulation of early 2000s male feminism of just like, hey, gross rape people are super gross. We're going to give you catharsis by presenting one and then hitting him. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, friend. Yeah, you, just, oh, des- you yeah. just described Joss Whedon's entire career. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong. Ah, Cabin in the Woods still fucking rules. That is true. But to be fair, he didn't direct it. He only helped write it. That's true. I don't it even think he helped, helped write it. I, I, I think he just produced it. I think that's a, no. I think he's he's got a screenplay credit. I actually I'm thought he only sure. put out donuts on the craft services table for Captain. <laughs> uh, Patrick, they were donut holes. They were the Munchkins. Mm. Full donuts on a craft service? You get out of here. <laughs> uh, for all our Canadian listeners, donut holes are Timbits. Just so you know. Mm, true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, we don't call them uh, by any kind of brand name. You hosers. Uh, also. Congratulations on the fucking weirdest Olympic athlete uh, ensemble uh, John, you possibly could have come up with. I think you mean the greatest Olympic uniform in history, denim on denim. Fuck yes. <laughs> They're wearing the Jean-Claude Van Damme and Lionheart special, the Canadian tuxedo. It is just a denim jacket that says I Heart Canada and white denim pants. Only the best for my beaver-skinning, donut-loving... Um, Igloo-building, hockey-playing brothers and sisters up north. Here's the thing. It, that outfit is like if Arcade Fire were a jacket. Yes, that's true. It would I'll probably have... To have t- they'd probably somehow have to put tweed patches on the elbows, but yeah, I think you're almost there. <laughs> uh, so anyway, we skip the gross scene. Yeah, uh, she gets yeah. into the backseat of the, the pussy wagon and her legs have uh, entrophied. She can't move them. Yeah. So only her this legs. is where... Only her legs. She's Correct. been in a coma for four years and her arms But it's only fine. her legs. I also took issue with that. Also, they call it in the, in the closed captioning, it said... She said they were. It was entropy in her legs, but I'm pretty sure the word is atrophy. Atrophy, yeah. yeah. It's atrophy. Um, well, see, what was happening was the nurses were coming in and uh, duct taping dumbbells to her forearms, <laughs> yeah, right. and just, just lifting them, them moving, up and down, they just move to kind of keep right. keep them limber. True. Well, because the legs don't bend that way. That's true. That's right. Legs famously don't bend. <laughs> yes. Uh, so she is staring at her big toe and she is trying to will her limbs back to life. Uh, and this is where we get some more backstory on what had happened. We get another yeah. expo dump. Yeah. Yeah. So this, uh, is... this one is the origin of Oren Ishii. Yes. Oh, is Presented this where we by... cut to their crappy anime? Because like, I, Buddy, I, I remember this anime. No, no, I, I will not fu- fucking mute his microphone. What Mark. are you even talking about? <laughs> the animes I remember watching in high school were considerably more well drawn than this. Ah. This is a production IG joint, which is one of the top anime companies out of Japan. And fuck you, the animation is insanely good. I would also totally disagree. Patrick, I would also, because I'll tell you, I thought the same thing the first time I saw this movie. I thought the the animation seemed like hate, like it seems rushed, right? It's very very sketchy. The characters kind of have a bit of squiggle vision to it. It's not nearly as sharp and colorful as the things I remember. But I was thinking about this as I was watching it uh, today, and 
I I realize like the whole thing is done as like a re- it's like a recollection of a yeah, recollection. Yeah, it's a memory. Yeah, well, it's not even a memory. It's it's, it's very like wispy. Yeah, well, it's a retelling of a recollection of a memory, right? Yeah. Like this is the bride telling you what she heard from Oren Ishii that Oren Ishii remembers from like 20 years ago when she was a kid. And also it's it's all like, it's, it's purposefully abstracted. Yeah. And like buddy lazy, you can tell that this is animated on the ones. This is a full, like at least 24 frames per second animated sequence. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and like, it's, I, you know, the characters look intentionally ugly and monstrous. Um, I, I actually, I agree with John. I think this sequence is actually really interesting. Um, and I don't even particularly give that many shits about anime. <laughs> uh, we will also, Patrick, just so you're aware, we'll give you a good uh, 60 seconds of rage at the end of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, of course. I've got plenty of awful things all. to say about this movie. Uh, I mean, you can just not, I'm not going to say it's the worst animation I've ever seen, but I definitely remember watching stuff on Cartoon Network that was much sharper and cleaner and more interesting to watch than what was shown to me there. Well, look. And I will disagree. It it is actually very clean. It is all, but it is very again the motion of it is very abstracted. The the sheer number of lines per character is like infeasible for <laughs> like it is exactly as long as it can be without killing an animator. <laughs> Many good animators have died. That's true. Well, and this was also done live, which was a terrible yeah. strain on their wrists. Yeah. <laughs> it, was anim- it was animated in front of a live studio audience. Right. That's why you get all those ooh. It was, the, it was really tough breaks. for the guy who had to flip the paper every time, like right on the minute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, uh, especially because you couldn't, you didn't have time to like lick your thumb if you were running out of, of good traction. That's, that's absolutely true. You got to hit the sponge like all in one motion. True. Uh, uh, so the true story, facts. So the origin. Yeah, the story of- we're I just, I, uh, real quick, uh, slightly uh, a tangent, but like I don't know if this has happened to either of you guys, where you're in a grocery store during a pandemic with your mask on and you can't get the produce bag to separate, and it's just like if I could just take this mask off for half a second <laughs> to lick my thumb to get these fucking apples in this bag, but instead now I'm here. Reduced to tears, screaming was, in agony. I was gonna say, you just keep keep like shaking it poorly until you start to cry, and then you can wet with the wet with the tears. Yeah, there you go. No, I'll, I'll tell you, I had a very similar experience like this fairly recently, where I went to the grocery store and they had uh, they had ribs on sale, and I was like, "Ooh, I'm gonna get some ribs." And then I stopped for a second. I was like, "Wait a minute." Does my wife even like ribs? Is she going to eat these? <laughs> and I had like a full-blown like crisis about this, like whether I could buy these ribs and like get away with it. Just try to replay the memory like in Minority Report of yeah. just like, have I ever seen her eating ribs before? What was her expression? And Pause, then, enhance. And then what was crazy about it was I... I ended up getting like chicken or whatever, just moving on from ribs because yeah, it was the ribs of poultry. Yeah, it was breaking my my brain. And then like on the way home, I was like, "Wait a minute, this happened to me like four years ago." <laughs> I went to a Target; they had ribs on sale, and I had a full blown panic attack because I couldn't remember if my wife liked ribs. The answer is we should also we should. By the way, uh, I, for the say, no, I do want to know. I do want to real know. quick. I want to say the answer to does my wife like ribs? My guess is, is yes. No, the answer is eh, they're fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just uh, for context for the audience, uh, Mark is deadly allergic to cell phones. 
This is true. <laughs> Whether it be calling or texting, his 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 fingers just turn to dust upon the screen. John, I don't want to disparage my wife, but when she's at work, she can't use her cell phone. So even though I did text her, she was not able to respond to me in time, and that also added to the <laughs> anxiety. <laughs> So let's see. My wife might not like ribs, and she could be dead. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah, that's it. Pretty much. (laughs) I get that. I get that. That's That's, that's terrifying experience. Guys, the world's going great, and everything is aces. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah. Uh, So, yeah, we get the origin of Oren Ishii, where she Mm -hmm. was uh, half Chinese, half Japanese, born on an American military base. So she's... She's of no single culture. Yeah, well, right. she's half Japanese, half Chinese American, I think they yes. say. Yeah. I mm-hmm. also think I just said that just now into this microphone. No. If we could play that back real quick, let me get into GarageBand and we'll, no, no, don't do uh, we'll it. Don't solve do this it. mystery now. I mean, we'll John, if we played it back, I would hear you say she's half Japanese, half Chinese, born on an American base. What I was saying is that she's half Japanese, half Chinese American, as they say yeah. in the movie. So you lose. Let's play that back. <laughs> oh no thank you listeners You're for joining me correct. Patrick Bromley in the future where we will determine further <laughs> that what actually happens is that Wait, she watches Patrick. her parents get milled by, killed by the Yakuza is that who does it yeah, it's a yes. Yakuza boss kills both of her parents while she's uh, hiding under the Matsumoto, bed. Boss Matsumoto, I believe. Yeah, welcome to Patrick's sanity corner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where this movie sucks and we keep moving forward. <laughs> <laughs> Real quick, though, uh, Patrick in the future. Yeah, do not tell me how I die. I don't want to have spoilers. Oh yeah, no problem, buddy. Also, that would ruin some plans of mine. <laughs> Do tell me though if I ever eat any of that uh, new delicious-looking Ghostbuster cereal. <laughs> I'll get on that. It turns your milk into ectoplasm. Oh, oh no. Yeah, uh, so sh- her parents are both murdered. Uh, she is hiding under the bed. She gets revenge on the Yakuza boss uh, by disguising herself as a sex worker and then disemboweling him. While she's violently. 11, because everyone in Quentin Tarantino movies is like either completely evil, and that means murderist, rapist, genocide heir, pedophile, or not. Yeah, and I think this is this is where that like okay, we want the violence to be over the top and fun, but like, which means it needs to be visited upon unambiguously the worst people in the world. And in both of these, in both the way her parents die and in this killing of this Yakuza boss, you get the the first glimpse in this movie of the patented uh, Tarantino stabbing is an ejaculation. Sure. Yeah. Yes, every time somebody is like stabbed or a limb is got a literal... Geyser Kubrick, of blood. Yeah, a Kubrick shining geyser of blood <laughs> arrives. And it's bright red and uh uh yeah, it's it's almost like that scene in Evil Dead uh uh Evil Dead 2 where like the Yeah, where the, the house is just vomiting blood yeah. right on the face of Bruce Campbell. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, this puts her in the orbit of the realm of professional assassins, which uh, puts her on the radar of uh, Bill. One William Billward. <laughs> Correct. Correct. <laughs> yeah, Bill is the only character that never gets more than like one name. He's just. No, he does. Uh, in the last movie, he is a.k.a. Snake Charmer. Oh, right, right, right. I meant okay. he doesn't have like a last name. He's just sure. Bill. Right. Right. <laughs> Um, so yeah. uh, which is it, it is hilarious when you need to put a lot of narrative weight on people having very painful memories of this character of just like you mean to tell me you're going to kill Bill. 
<laughs> it's like, ah, yeah. maybe second draft that name real yeah. quick. Right. <laughs> Uh, well, Kill Roland didn't have the same, uh, didn't have the same ring. True, true. Um, so yeah, so she eventually, yeah, she joins up with the Deadly Viper Assassination Squad. They And that's when she plays her part in the, the murder of the bride yes. at the wedding chapel. Yeah. And then after that, Bill uses his financial resources to back her claim to become the boss of bosses in Tokyo's criminal underworld. Yes, mm-hmm. correct. And she assembles I... an army. The 88. The crazy 88s. Good for them. This is is why chapter one was the second name on her list, because she says, you know, she basically formulates a plan of like, all right, I go after Oren. She's going to be connected enough to be able to have the information of what happened to all of the other deadly vipers. Yes. Right. So she goes to... Okinawa. Okinawa to One see the way. man from Okinawa. Yes. Uh, who is played by Sonny Shiba. Yes. I cannot express enough how much I love his performance as goofy old man. This, yeah, no, is, this is actually one of the better scenes in the movie. This is, is hands the whole down, restaurant scene. Hands down my favorite scene of the movie. And I do think it works with the exoticism that is happening of the Japanese characters a lot in this movie because it's done very intentionally because he is playing a character who is also putting on a show for the American tourist. Right. Right. While they're also doing like a classic 40 slapstick between him and the, his worker. His like apprentice? Yeah. No, no, that's like practically right. Clamadia Del Art stuff they're doing. <laughs> well, I was going to say, we're all agreed that those two are, those two dudes are married, right? That's their, they're in a long-term relationship, know. right? Correct. Yes. They're not, I don't think they're married, oh, sure. but they definitely are partners. Yeah, 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 absolutely. The, like the like screwball comedy, long time marriage jokes are all there. Yeah, oh, you yeah. don't get that frustrated with another human being that you are not having sex with. Yeah, they are they're le- they're legitimately the fucking lockhorns. <laughs> Though I, I do love when he hits on Uma Thurman. I love I think my favorite line in the movie is when he says to her, You know I'm not bald, I just shaved my head, right? You understand? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so uh, Uma Thurman goes to this little sushi shack in the middle of Okinawa, which is if you do uh, any research at all on this okinawa is famous for having terrible sushi (laughs) so if someone wanted to like hide out under the radar they would open up a sushi shack in okinawa no one would ever come in and no one is in Uh, this building when she comes in correct yeah so she comes she comes in she is putting on a performance of like goofy american tourist like enjoying japan he is putting on a performance of like entertaining this goofy American tourist to try to get more tips out of it. Right. Uh, And they're both basically just kind of like feeling each other out of just like, is this actually the man from Okinawa that I am looking for? Right. And eventually uh, after this, again, this very hilarious scene between these people. Yeah. Sonny Shiba yells to an unseen man behind the bar of just like, come out here and pour the tea to which he responds. You pour the tea. I'm watching my soap operas. (laughs) Now, guys, what do you th- what soap opera do you think he was watching? Do you think he was watching a local soap opera, or do you think he had some illegal cable hooked up and he was watching fucking Passions? No, I'm saying he looks like an older guy. I'm going Young and the Restless, man. 
Oh, nice. So you don't Absolutely, think you yeah. don't think he was into the talking dolls and vampires and werewolves of passions? <laughs> no. That waters down the drama too much. You can't invest in it if there's all that supernatural bullshit. I think he's that's in it the, strictly for the relationship. The Gen say, X stay-at-home parent set. I guess you yeah. say that, John, but General Hospital is one of the longest-running soaps that ever existed. And on that show, there was a guy with a weather machine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, based in science. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I do. I do love uh, Sonny Schieber's reaction when he when he says like, uh, "You do it. I'm watching my soaps." He's just like, "Shit!" And it's got the look on his face of like, "Yeah, it is two o'clock. He is watching his soaps." Yeah. Fuck. And I love the guy. Comes I know up, I'm never gonna get him away from the TV now. He comes out and he's like, "What do you want to drink?" And and she goes, uh, "Sake, a cup of warm sake." And he goes, "It's the middle of the day." <laughs> <laughs> We also get another great line of, we'll just act out the whole fucking thing. But, uh, <laughs> right. My yeah. personal favorite line is... It's a is, great scene. The the young guy is just like, uh, what is it, for for seven years, I've been getting the tea and you've been serving the 20, sushi. 25 years. 25 years. If we were in the military, I would be a general by now. He's <laughs> like, oh, you would be a general? If you're a general, I'm the emperor and you still get the goddamn tea. <laughs> right. I love, and I love how they punctu- he punctuates his... Japanese with with like they keep doing this where you, uh, punctuates with understand in English. <laughs> yeah. In English, yeah. It's so yeah. great. It's great. Uh, but, uh, so he goes to get the tea. She explains that she is in Okinawa to find someone, and he's like, "Oh, who are you trying to find?" And that's when she drops the name Hattori Hanzo. Yeah, and he immediately comes to a a stop, and he's like, "Well, why are you looking for this Hattori Hanzo?" And she's like, "I need Japanese steel," and he's like, "You." Why? He's like, I've got vermin. I need to kill. to kill vermin. Yeah, and he said, Oh, you must have some pretty big vermin. She says, Huge. Then he takes her into his fucking sword porn attic. Uh, yeah, yeah. Where there's like ethereal choirs playing yeah. as uh, as right. she is like perusing the different katana that are on yes. display. And I guarantee you, every single one of those swords Quentin Tarantino already personally owned. Correct. Again, he bought yes. him at the mall with all of his fedoras. <laughs> Again, he's a huge weeb. I know he's got a big old body pillow shaped like a anime lady. I just know it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, this is where we find out that uh, uh, Sunny Shiba's character Hatori Hanzo has kind of an unforgiven thing going on, where he was the finest sword maker in Japanese history. He made perfect katana, but then his former student Bill did like broke bad and started hurting people with his katanas. So he made a vow to God that he would never make an instrument of death. Uh, Uma Thurman is just like, Hey, how convenient I'm here to kill Bill. So if you give me a sword, I can do that and we can all be good. And he's like, all right, it'll take a month. Yeah. He's like, you can sleep here, which I want to see that fun, wacky sitcom. <laughs> yeah, there's there's definitely like 30 minutes of deleted footage of Uma Thurman like working part-time in the sushi bar downstairs. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he... So they uh, one month later, uh, the sword is complete and there's like this big, long presentation ceremony where he again explains that if this sword were to come across God, it would cut God. It is the greatest creation of his career. Uh, it's all done very reverentially and everything. And he hands over the sword and she goes off to, to kill Bill. And then... Yeah, so she well, gets a plane ticket okay. to Tokyo. Yeah, almost immediately, like, there's this whole se- this whole sequence with Sonny Chiba is so great. And I love it so much. But then the, like, 
the dissonance of like as soon as it's over, it goes bing. One ticket to Tokyo, please. Yeah. We even get the little Indiana Jones red line from Okinawa to Tokyo. Yeah. You also, I noticed this uh, on this watching, but you can see the wires that are holding up the model plane every time it shows a oh, plane shot. Yeah, the planes were garbage. <laughs> But yeah. again, well, I think that's done on purpose. That was a purposeful choice because when she is like descending into Tokyo, that is clearly like a kaiju model. Yeah. Okay. I think like, there is some insert shots of like aerial footage, but like the main shot of like the plane going over the billboard is like all like basically kaiju scale model work. Right. Uh, so she lands in Tokyo. Uh, I did notice on the plane, however, not only is she allowed to have her sword. There's another <laughs> different yes, sword. I saw that. Two people have swords. So I guess 9-11 didn't happen in the Dusk Till Dawniverse. Yeah, well, it's supposedly. possible. Maybe they have concealed carry or open carry but swords. But they're not concealed. You're right. No, you're right. Maybe they, have, maybe, they, maybe they think they're those umbrellas that have sword handles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you, it's all the honor system at, at TSA security. You can nah. just... No, no, this is an umbrella. Oh, well, obviously, go through. Well, to be fair, I don't think the TSA exists in Japan. Yeah, no, I guess you're right. I guess the rules are different. Yeah. I guess we haven't exported that particular <laughs> branch of our imperialism. <laughs> gotcha. So anyways, she lands in Japan, immediately puts on a Bruce Lee Game of Death jumpsuit, and the yeah. shit goes down. Yeah, she gets on a motorcycle, and for the next, you know... 10 minutes of the movie, it is just, like, music montages of, like, Streets of Tokyo and things happening. Yeah, like, the gangsters, like, the crazy idiots. the big, dumb board meeting right in here? Or is that later? That was during the origin sequence. Oh, okay. The board meeting? Yeah, yeah where the... the No, I think it is... I think it is... Oh, he, you're right, you're Maybe right. it yeah, is yeah. here. Yeah, because she's explaining who all the different members of Oren's entourage right. are. Right, 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 right. And there's the lawyer... Uh, and then, yeah, we've got... We've got the lawyer, uh, Sophie Fatale, who is half Japanese, half French. Uh, she's like the concierge of the... I'm the sorry. Concierge? Can you say that one more time? Yeah, no. She, yeah. she tells the mobsters what restaurants to go to. Exactly. Exactly. And she uh, she helps with the luggage every time someone needs to get up a flight of stairs. Nice. The, nice. the concierge. <laughs> yeah. She tells you how to call James Kahn. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, bear in mind, he hates exact change. I mean, it's true. <laughs> but he loves uh, but gar- he loves garbage can lids and has a true. huge dong. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy Conn, uh, so yeah, we've, got, we've got Sophie Fatal. We've got Gogo Yabari, who is a uh, Japanese schoolgirl assassin. Again, Gross. huge weeb. Gross. Yeah. Yeah. Gross. Yeah. Uh, and then we get, uh, I can't remember the, the character's name, but Johnny it's Gordon Lou. Johnny Moe, played yeah. by Gordon Liu, who is pretty damn good. Yeah, he's the, he's like a very famous martial arts performer. Yeah, yeah and he is He'll the... He'll do some uh, tricky stuff later. Yeah, and, yeah. and he's the... Uh, he also plays Pai Mei in volume two. Yes. Okay. Which is, I gotta say, a great performance. I do really like it. Uh, even if it does, again, <laughs> straddle some difficult lines. Correct. Um, I mean, I think it can be justified because Pai Mei is canonically like he's from the Shaw Brothers movies and he is like the worst person. You yes. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, but that's always how he's justifying it. That's always yeah, that's how true. he's justifying it. Yeah, that's true. So, anyways, uh, we are yes. uh, yeah, and we get we get a flashback to the boardroom where she took over the the yakuza underground, uh, and one of the mob bosses is like, "It's bullshit. You're not real Japanese." And she cuts his goddamn head off, and there is a geyser of blood. And again, I this is a cilantro thing where you either like it or you are repelled and hate it. I really like the stupid, goofy, over-the-top blood violence oh, in this I movie. It. I think it's a lot of fun. I absolutely uh, hate it. I'm with John here. This cilantro is delicious. Mm. Yeah, more on my nachos, please. Um, when you start tying violence to ejaculation, you make me feel bad for have ever watched a movie or a football game or a wrestling match or anything. Or like having you have, ejaculated? You've slipped the <laughs> void between us and the, uh, and the barbarians. Those are all his euphemisms for ejaculating. <laughs> uh, mom and dad told knock on my door. I'm going to be watching football if you catch <laughs> my drift. Uh, so. <laughs> Get out of here. I'm watching wrestling. Didn't you see the tie on my door? Uh, so, yeah, so the, the bride shows up. Uh, they, uh, she shows up at the, the House of Blue Leaves, yes. which is the kind of, like, nightclub that uh, Orenishi kind of, like, has all of her gangster business take place. Yeah, yeah. They're, and they're brought in there by the Charlie Brown-looking guy and, and his, <coughs> his uh, wife-slash-business partner. Which, again, I have a little bit of a problem with because later on it's a joke of just like, hey, you look like Charlie Brown. And it's like, yeah, you put him in an orange kimono <laughs> with black zigzags on yeah. it. Like, you did that on purpose. Yeah, you, you put, put him, him in a Charlie that's Brown not shirt. Fun. So yeah, that's not like a Charlie funny observation. Yeah, yeah uh, while the, uh, the soon-to-be iconic sounds of the five, six, seven, eights are playing. Um, I remember that phone commercial. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I will say, like, that... That, they fucking rock, though. Yeah. They're real good. That was one of those, like, sort of, I don't want to call them a novelty group, because they're not a novelty group. They're a very real band, and I don't want to diminish their uh, what, what they do as musicians. But, like, here in America, that ooh, 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 ooh song was kind of, it's it was like a novelty hit, basically, because yeah. of this it's movie. A, it's a dumb rockabilly tune. Exactly, and it, it, it reminded me a lot of when, so this friend... And his parents were DJs. They would do, like, weddings and stuff like that and, like, bar mitzvahs and what whatnot. Uh, and so anytime any song, like, got remotely popular, they would buy that song. But this is in a pre-digital media age, so if you wanted that song, you probably had to buy the whole album. Ooh, and Quentin Tarantino's soundtracks always have dialogue in them. Ugh. But even better, they would track down the artist's album. So like they Oof. they bought like the five six seven eights album, which is actually like pretty good. They are a really I did get introduced to them through this movie, but they are a real good band. They're got the, it's sort of an outgrowth of like when punk was first kind of starting to get seeded. There was like a reggae track to punk, and then there was like a surfer track to punk. Yeah, and this was if they took the surfer track to punk, and it's. Yeah, it's real good. Yeah. They're very good. Also, for the record, uh, and I don't know that this was apparent to all of us at the time, but all of the Swing Revival people were all former punks. Like, all of oh, yeah, 50s, yeah. 40s revival stuff well, they that were happened also at that like, time. They were also like first wave ska washouts. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, some of those guys too. Um, but to get back to the, my story, so they bought this <laughs> album. So basically just so at weddings they could play, ooh, 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 ooh. 
<laughs> but one of the other albums, like they would buy fucking crazy shit. Like they bought like they bought the Sopranos soundtrack just to have the Sopranos theme song to yeah. play that at fucking weddings. Like there were people, <laughs> there were enough people at weddings being like, "I need you to play Woke Up This Morning for for that big dance." Uh, and then they also bought. Do you remember the uh, the Volkswagen commercial with the da da da? Beep, oh yeah, beep, absolutely. Beep. They bought not they bought the fucking album by that band Trio and they would listen to that whole fucking album at home. Oof. Good lord. And it was like like you've heard da da da. It's a kind of cute song for about 40 seconds, the length of a commercial, and yeah. then it becomes fuck mind-numbingly murder-inducing. Now sure, imagine yeah. an entire hour-long album like that. <laughs> no thank you yeah, yeah. bad stuff bad stuff uh so, anyways, uh so we get a really fucking kick-ass tracking shot uh following uma thurman through this uh this like weird like dance club slash restaurant it's really strange because there's a huge dance floor but the lights are like brighter than they would be in your office at work did you notice on that cool dance floor that there were a lot of like very cool Japanese people having very cool dances and one seven foot tall goofy <laughs> idiot with a goatee? I there are two things that always catch my eye. That fucking weird reject from the American office just hanging out on the dance floor and uh, a woman who turns and looks directly into the camera <laughs> as they're panning across. <laughs> The yeah, I love the tracking shot. One of the things Tarantino loves to do is build sets that have no ceilings, so he can like kind of like film overhead, and you can track people moving through yeah. rooms. And it does lay out the geography that the big fight scene is going to take place For in sure. very it, well. But it's like a really cool tracking shot. Uh, she ends up in the bathroom. She goes into the bathroom to change into the outfit that she is also currently wearing. Yeah, yes. she goes into the it bathroom seems to, to take, take her off twenty her matching coat. <laughs> Yeah, it takes her about 20 minutes to take off her jacket. Right. Uh, and then one of the things, that, well, this is one of my other favorite cool camera tricks, is she steps into the bathroom, and it's got like a paper wall, and then it is illuminated in such a way that you can see through it. Mm-hmm. So they don't have to, it's not like yeah. it's not like a CGI plate or like green screen. It's an in-camera like lighting trick, which I think is just really interesting. Yeah, and sure. I also noticed uh, this time that during the big tracking shot, they've, you like you see a little bit of the kitchen and it is illuminated by one like sickly green fluorescent right. light that mm-hmm. is completely different from all the other lighting as a kitchen like, would just, be <laughs> yeah, yeah right. just like as little flourishes are. like that are, are i just think like very cool yeah and i think that's that's kind of the big we've been dancing around the issue but like you either think this is cool or embarrassing and i think not to speak for you mark but i think we find it pretty cool and patrick i think you find it pretty embarrassed oh yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> no i i would say that like i i find a majority of tarantino pretty cool <laughs> uh, despite myself i yeah i have not i'm not quite off the i'm not as deep into the tarantino bullshit that i was in high school Same. i'm just like my identity <laughs> is his movies so saying a bad about his movies we can't be friends Bruh. oh yeah there was but a- it's just like then I saw more than one movie a year and was like, oh, it's fine. Yeah, no, there was a time where my entire identity was wrapped around Quentin Tarantino, Kevin Smith, and Robert Rodriguez movies. <laughs> you may have noticed that we are 
white dudes with beards what grew up in the suburbs. Uh, yeah, exactly. And in, in the 90s. Uh, yeah. Well, despite so, I, having all of those failings, uh, there there's no other <laughs> filmmaker that I loathe more. No one can inspire the kind of rage that I feel. <laughs> because again, I I do think that his movies are very unapologetically his movies, and I think he is unapologetically proud of all of them in a very loud way. He, and I can absolutely see that being. I think it's the same reason that I find Christopher Nolan to be a little distancing of just like, you are so into your own shit. Oh, yeah. And I don't sure. think it's as cool as you think it is. Sure. So, like, I can definitely sure. empathize with what you're saying I, for sure. I, I think Quentin Tarantino is the ar- the perfect argument for and against auteur theory. <laughs> yeah and i think here's the thing and i was even uh, again i was uh, we were talking about this movie last night with my wife and we came to the conclusion of tarantino walked so that edgar wright could fly yeah edgar wright takes basically all of the like reference cinema and all of the like camera tricks and just the basic like energy of a tarantino and he just does it i think a lot more consistently good you know, and, and a lot less problematic and he, does I think- it, he has fun I think the di- that's the key difference between, in my opinion, Quentin Tarantino on the one hand and uh, both Edgar Wright and Robert Rodriguez on the other is both of those guys actually have a functioning sense of humor. Yeah. That is good. Uh, now, I, I will say, there, there are moments in Tarantino movies that are legit funny. Like, if you have, I don't know if you've seen uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but there are scenes in that movie that are some of the funniest fucking shit he's ever I done. Mean, and the restaurant do scene here love... is funny, but like yeah. the yeah. one scene, whereas Edgar sure. Wright and Robert Rodriguez are funny throughout their movies. Yeah. Well, I think a big thing is yeah. between, especially between like Edgar Wright and Robert Rodriguez and then Quentin Tarantino is Edgar Wright and Robert Rodriguez are making movies for you to enjoy their movies. Quentin Tarantino is making movies for Quentin Tarantino to enjoy those movies. Yeah, <laughs> very much so. Yeah. I think it also helps when you're doing that level of slapstick violence to be in the context of a working comedy, as opposed to this, which is sort of on that line and trying to be a little more of a revenge drama. I do think that uh, Tarantino suffers a lot in trying to, because his whole thing was like, my movies are all genres. They're like, they're a mix up of all the genres. It's not one genre. And I think like, for stuff like Kill Bill, I think it works really well. For stuff like even Pulp Fiction, which is like a new wave movie and like a dumb gangster movie, I think it works really well. But then you get shit like Hateful Eight, which is trying to be like a stage play and a Western and a remake of Unforgiven. And it just, ugh, yeah. none of it works. Hateful Eight is the only movie of his I literally have not been able to like watch in its entirety. Uh, you are not missing much. That's what I figured. <laughs> And, like, what is frustrating specifically about that movie is, like, Jesus Christ, the amount of effort on display is staggering. Like, the amount of work that went into that movie, every performance is fucking incredible. The costumes are painfully good. And, like, it's, it's I think, the first time he shot in 70 millimeter. Right. And it is gorgeous. But, like... Anytime a character so- talks or does something, I just want to rip my ears off. <laughs> and I actually like it a lot more than a lot of the other people that I've talked to about this movie, because I get that it's trying to, like, 
rip away the myth of the noble cowboy, but like there's only so many times I can see Walter Goggins give the same racist monologue. Of course, yeah. I think I think that's the one thing that like especially later like Quentin Tarantino after these movies specifically decides to go on his like alternative history uh uh like genre movie like bent and like he gets really there's some really strong successes i think in glorious bastards is probably one that of the still my favorite yeah it's probably one of the best american films of the last 50 years it's goddamn perfect in almost every way except for the violence against women that don't need to be there and especially the fact that he chose himself to choke that poor woman in the scene and actually choked her to unconsciousness because he didn't trust stuntmen to do it that was gross but wait yeah. but why <laughs> if you can't trust the stuntmen what were they gonna do to her well he ne- <laughs> he needed to he needed to choke her so the because ca- also the camera ha- it, look man it i, I he's never I'm been just able gonna to go give- out on a limb here and guarantee you that that's not one of the best american movies of the last 50 years <laughs> I, 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 it is with all of the obligatory Tarantino asterisks. Yeah, for you know sure. what I yeah, mean? but like, those asterisks by default disqualify it <laughs> from being one of the best Americans. Sure. There is there is a little prayer that I say to myself in the movie theater before seeing any Tarantino movie, and that prayer is privilege activate. <laughs> <laughs> It is a conscious decision to say, like, this is, Mm. I am a privileged member of the audience watching a movie directly from the mind of one of the most privileged people to walk the earth. And you know what? (laughs) I can still enjoy it, but I have to activate my privilege. Yeah. I mean, mean, that's, that's, that's fair, I guess. And, like, here's the thing. Like, I think it's important to be able to, like, you can, like, I can objectively look at the movie and say, like, you know, you know, and Glorious Bastards is a great movie while also like being able to like criticize like the things I don't like about it or the things that are problematic about it. And I think that's important. You know what I mean? Like that's important with all, yeah. art. you know what I mean? Sure. Like I, I'll, I, I can guarantee you at some point in my life, I'm probably going to watch seven again. And like seven's a great fucking movie, but then sex criminal Kevin Spacey shows up. <laughs> there is uh, one of the podcasts I listen to has a rule where it's okay to watch a Kevin Spacey movie if he dies in it. <laughs> Fair. I mean, he plays yeah, but that, that does. So that does include seven. That does include um, Baby Driver. Baby Driver. It also includes Life of David Gale, though, and you really shouldn't watch that movie. <laughs> Well, I, I was think it, say, also it also includes unfortunately K-Pax. includes American. I think it, includes <laughs> it includes American Beauty as well. Oh God, man, he's that died a lot. How did, we not, how did we not see it coming when his big like Oscar bait movie was? Can I find the bravery, the strength of character to have sex with a seventeen-year-old? <laughs> right. Also, what a movie! What a boring, boring shit fest of pederasty. <laughs> Like, that yeah. is everything that's ever been described to be wrong with Hollywood in one movie. And because of that Correct. movie, Sam Mendes gets to make James Bond movies now. Jesus. Yeah, that's wild. God. But yeah, so anyway, we're at the House of Blue Leaves, and we have... <laughs> yeah. Uh, basically, she uh, she's in the bathroom. Sophie Fatal uh, takes a phone call, which, like... Uh, 
reminds uh, the bride of just like, that's right, she took a phone call while I was getting beat up while to death. everybody which was is, killing me, yeah. She hasn't, which, like, yeah, that's pretty stupid. That's a bridge too far it's, for me. Especially for sure. because, especially because in the intervening four years, she A, has not changed her cell phone, and B, has not changed her ringtone. Right. Correct. Uh, but she realizes that that's Sophie Fatale, so she basically, like, holds her hostage to call out Oran, that's when we have the big act three, which is basically just fight scenes. Right. She she calls out, oh, she goes, oh, Randy, she? And then they come out and, you know, they have a little thing. She cuts off Sophie Fatale's arm again, just geyser of, of red corn. Big ejaculation of blood, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just, a, just fucking, just cum ropes of blood everywhere. <laughs> just Real ropes. gross. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, all right. Uh, so, we, uh, yeah, she sends out the subordinates that have been in her, like, private dining chamber. So it's like five five goons yeah. Yeah. that she dispatches pretty quick. Now, this part, this kills me. Because the first goon comes down the stairs, and then we get the big payoff of this 20 minutes we spent in Okinawa. They sword clash once, and the Okinawan sword of, uh, of Beatrix goes right through his sword, and then she just fucking kills him because he can't believe it. She will then proceed to fight 87 other people with presumably regular-ass swords, and their swords will parry her super sword with no problem. She will never that's cut well, another cause... sword in half until the very last guy. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess you can justify that if you want to be pedantic of saying, like, well, those are, like, the sides of the swords are clashing, and it's more of a deflective measure because she's got so many people around Only her to deal in with in some once. instances, though. She's meeting sure. some of those swords edge to edge. Because definitely in I the think... next two guys, she definitely side slaps them. But later yeah, in true. the big fight, um, she's definitely going edge to edge. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the lightsaber problem of, like, what can and can't a lightsaber cut through. Right, and it turns out the answer is whatever the script says it does. Right, yeah. right. But I can definitely see, like, if you're, if you're an idiot like me who's enjoying the movie, it doesn't really register. But I can definitely see if you're already not enjoying the movie, it's just like, well, fuck this. <laughs> yeah. Come on. I just want to know be why this movie with your magic sword. cold for me to be in Okinawa for 20 minutes for that one guy's <laughs> sword to get cut in half. It is so that in volume two, you can get the payoff that Bud pawned his for 500 bucks yeah. in El Paso, <laughs> That's Texas. That's pretty much it. <laughs> okay. Uh, so anyways, uh, the, yeah, so she takes so on yeah, this is where one we've got goon Go -Go and then Yubari. multiple goons and then, and then multiple more goons, yeah. multiple goons. Then she fights Gogo, uh, who has like this fucking... She's got the flying guillotine. Yeah, She's so got a styrofoam ball painted gray with spikes in it. That thing has yeah, no Patrick, weight. you did it. You you figured it out. They're all fake rubber weapons. <laughs> no one's actually getting their arms cut off. Yeah, but you could well have done. a weapon that had weight to it. <laughs> I, I, I kind of disagree with you. I think for most of the fight, it does feel pretty hefty. I, I disagree. I, it flies forward as if it has a rocket. I will say this. I will say this. The first time she unleashes it, and like there's that 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 scene where she like drops the ball to the ground, and it kind of like you, and he goes shunk, and kind of hangs there. The sound effects do all the heavy lifting because when you get a good close up look at it, it is clearly a piece of like rubber or styrofoam <laughs> that is painted gray. But they do a very good job later on. I think during the fight when she's like throwing it, it's blasting through chairs and shit. 
making it look like a legit weapon. And I get it. You can't have a, an actor swinging around a giant metal ball at somebody. Uh, they didn't crawl. <laughs> you could choose not to invent John, that's, weapons. John, that's why there's no crawl too. Too many, oh, no. too many people died. <laughs> yeah, there's a legit body count to that movie. Yeah. Um, but I do like this fight and I like this, uh, like this weird made up like weapon. Like it's, and again, I do like how, again, they're, they're breaking chairs, they're breaking tables. I really, and it's something that I miss a whole lot. And I think we talked about this in our blade episode of like environmental damage happening in your fights. They are destroying all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Like modern movies are too like clean with that like the fight is strictly between two people and if they use the environment it's so that they can like jump off of something i gotta ask though are people really fighting in in modern sets anymore or people just fighting on green screens (laughs) yeah i think they're all fighting in the volume (laughs) yeah (laughs) um so uh gogo gets a little bit of an advantage on beatrix uh like gets like the chain wrapped around uh uh, the bride's neck and starts to like choke her out uh and then the bride (laughs) Uh, grabs a nail with a board in it, stabs her in the foot, and then hits her in the side of the head and probably uh, yep. in a pretty rad fucking kill. But someday they'll have a bigger board <laughs> with a bigger <laughs> nail until they have a board and a nail so big it destroys them all. Third Simpsons reference. I guarantee you Quentin Tarantino had that in mind. I right. guarantee it. <laughs> I mean, we do know that he is a Simpsons fan because he has seen the episode of The Simpsons that he made that they, like, cameoed him into. Right. And unlike Morrissey, he seemed to really enjoy it. (laughs) We're recording this on uh, on, uh, St. Morrissey's Day Eve, where the episode of The Simpsons where a very clear Morrissey analog was a huge racist, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, and real-life racist Morrissey has taken to the airwaves to say... Well, they don't even say what I'm racist about, so how can I be racist? <laughs> uh, actually, I think he sounds more like, Oh, they don't even say what I, I'm racist. <laughs> I will say that Al Jean had a very good tweet, which is, We've done the impossible. We've made Morrissey fans even more sad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fuck that guy. That guy is a Nazi guy. Yeah, I was going to say, and then after he did that radio show, he invited everybody to he and Eric Clapton's key. Keep England English show. Yeah, you know who the opener was? Van Morrison. <laughs> right? Oh, that still hurts. Uh, so anyways. So yeah, all the subordinates, as far as we can see on screen, are dead. Uh, and then but that's when we get the sounds red. of motorcycles. And then more subordinates show up. <laughs> yes, and this is that like uh, uh, big moment that was like in all the trailers. And that like, dunk a dunk 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 we do get uh, that song was actually uh, previous to that. That was in the establishing shot, and I wanted because I wanted to say it's at this part where we get some sweet Reza beats. Yes, because <laughs> yeah. it's all just like wow, wow, right, yeah. right, right. It's a lot of like really cool fucking Reza drops. Uh, but yeah, we get the fight of the House of Blue Leaves, where she is just massacring down, well, now, fighting against let's describe all these this goons. accurately. There are like presumably 87 goons there and she starts so her fight. Not. In volume t- in volume two, they do say Bill says them? like, nah, there wasn't really 88 of them. Okay. They just thought it sounded cool. Yeah. In any case, she's fighting. But there's like a good couple dozen. Yeah, easy. And she starts to fight them and it's almost <laughs> like a fight scene going and there's some cool things happening. But then we get bored and she just break dances with a sword and people's limbs fly off. 
Okay, you're missing. I the find part. that really entertaining yeah. though. Like, oh my I god, so it's goofy. such fucking garbage. Well, and you're it's you're so missing dumb. the part. You're missing the part where she rips out a guy's eye with her bare hands. It goes black and white because apparently American audiences weren't ready for yeah. full color violence in 2006. Yeah, why does it go black and white? It goes Here's black and white thing. for I've no got... reason. No, it I've... does. Fellas, I am the keeper of the Japanese cut. I know why it goes black and white. <laughs> yeah, it is black and white because uh, the MPAA was just like, this is an X rating if you want to show all this blood. So he's like, all right, fine. I'll cut to black and white. And stylistically, I wish that he had conceived this section to be in black and white right. because the way that it's shot now, the blood, everything is lit so poorly for it to show up in black and white that everything is like super blown out and the color is like super washed out, which sucks because as I was watching it this time, I was like, if this was conceived to ble- to be a black and white segment he could have made it look like a really high contrast Japanese manga and it would have fit with the like comic book tone of the movie even better. Correct. But as it is now, it's just, again, this is the second difference between the Japanese and American cuts. It's just to appease the MPA. I can't and believe they actually dumb. gave him an, a rating down just to put it in black and white. <laughs> Like that's yeah. The MPA simply hates the color red. Ah, right. I guess that's fair. Like, if you make your blood any other color, they're fine yeah, with it. Yeah, you can't have red blood and you can't fuck. Anything else, <laughs> any, everything else is fair game. Says you, old man! Vroom, vroom. <laughs> John just left to go play football, if you know what I mean. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> and you can't stop me. Uh, so anyways, yeah, she... She wipes the floor with the crazy 88s uh, over the course uh, of like couple, four or five needle drops. <laughs> yeah. There is a couple, like I like that her specific fight with Gordon Liu escalates through the fight where she keeps like just knocking him down for the count and he keeps coming back with more swords yeah. basically. Uh, uh, this is where we get probably a very strange comedic beat where like She's... It's not black and white anymore. It's like blue backlit. And I think that this scene itself is shot very cool and interesting. But she dispatches all the goons except for one and the lights come back on. And uh-oh, it's just a kid. And so she spanks him and sends him home. Yeah. It feels like a weird 1970s British newspaper comic for no reason. <laughs> yeah, it's really inexplicable. Yeah. Like this, I really don't get. Yeah, it comes, it's, I think it's an outtake from Are You Being Served, maybe? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this is where she goes out into the, like, snow-drenched courtyard to have the final showdown with Oren. Mm-hmm. Yes. And again, I think that this is shot very beautifully. And, like, yes, it is super on the nose. But, like, I don't know, I really like it. I'm, I'm with you, John. I'm with you. Mm-hmm. I mean the 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 setting in the snowy little park that's outside of this place is actually like lovely. Like it's a real like this yeah. is pretty. But uh, I will say the one thing about this scene I I noticed today for the first time when I was watching it and it just it, it really screamed I'm Quentin Tarantino to me was they're just about to fight. They get their swords. How out. lovingly she takes off her. He sandals. takes off her fucking shoes to fight in the snow. Yeah. 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 And the camera shows every single beat of the slipper coming off yeah, and the show foot those pushing it back. Feet. Yeah, those <laughs> and then the next feet. slipper comes off. You like them toes? You like them fucking feet? Yeah, uh, that's right. Still with those fucking feet. Mark's watching listeners, football at the moment. He'll be back soon. <laughs> also, yeah, listeners, that's don't right. worry. Show me those fucking feet while the bears play. Yeah. No. The, uh, 
don't worry if any MPA members are listening. Mark is in black and <laughs> white. Correct. Yeah, yeah no, he leaned in good, so, so the lighting got him. It was nice. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we have uh, what I think is a pretty interesting little like one-on-one duel, which we haven't really seen like a proper like samurai duel in the movie yet. It's Though the complete opposite of the initial fight. Very close-up yeah. shots or very far-away shots. For yeah. the most part, and I think you don't get a lot of like you don't get the stuff you had with Vivica Fox where you really see what's happening. Yeah, it's more a fight of uh, of like thrust and parries it is a very like suspenseful fight where like it's it is motionless for as long as it can be until someone has to make a move yes and i think uh, yeah i think it's pretty cool yeah it is a shameless lady snow blood reference Mm -hmm. right to the part where there is blood on the snow from a lady yeah Yeah. i will say but i like it i will say this it has one of my favorite cover songs of all time, which is the Santa Esmeralda 12-minute cover oh, yeah. of Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood. With those clap, that fucking, that like, that The clasp. clap and the, oh. the like, I don't know if it's a mandolin, but the mandolin-esque sort of like acoustic it's flam- guitar. It's like flamenco yeah. guitar. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, they're, they're like a Spanish-French, like, disco band. And yeah. yeah, oh man, I love that fucking version of that song. Yeah. And I do like the the character evolution that happens in this fight of like at first Lucy Lou. Have we mentioned that Lucy Lou plays Orochi? I don't think so. Because that's kind of important. Maybe. It is. Uh, and she fucking rules. She's great. I really like her performance in this. I like all the performances across the board. I think they're all exactly what the movie asks of them. Uh, but Lucy Lou starts the fight of just like, you're not a real samurai. She says like, where'd you get that sword? And she's like, it's a Hanzo sword. And she's like, bull fucking shit, you idiot. But, like, as the fight continues, she, like, grows to, like, regain the respect that she had for this other person back when they were, like, the world's baddest assassins. And I think that that's, like, a fun evolution to see through the through the course of the fight. Uh, and then the fight ends when Uma Thurman slices off the top of her head in that fun behind-the-scenes picture you've all seen on Twitter. Yeah, but and yep. then that kills her. But we all know from watching Ray Fine or uh, uh, what's his name in Hannibal, you cut the top of the head off. The guy's still alive. That's a Ray Liotta. Yeah, Liotta. Yeah, it's yeah. no as problem. Far ba- as far back as I can remember, I always wanted the top of my head cut off and fed part <laughs> of my brain. No big deal. Yeah, put a little glass. Yeah, over she it. dies. Yeah, she dies. Uh, she. We cut to her dumping the body of uh, Sophie. Uh, Sophie Fatale into a hospital, and then we get... It is at this point that in the Japanese cut, the movie stops, and volume two starts. Right. Like, the first chapter of volume do two they kicks in. Do start the volume of chapter two with this little interplay between Sophie and Bill? They do not. Or, yeah. Okay, so that ends this, this. Well, No, 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 I'm sorry. They, they do, they do, they do the, the interplay between Bill, but then in this movie where it cuts back to the airplane where she's doing her death list... All that's gone, and the revelation that her child is still alive is also gone. So in the, like, big four-hour cut, you don't know that BB is still alive until she just shows up. Okay. Yeah. And it is, like, a really cool, effective, like, shocking moment because you feel the same shock that Uma Thurman does yeah. in that moment. In the gotcha. American, But in the American version here, it, it ends, in essence, with a trailer for Volume yeah. 2. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And then and then volume two begins with a let me catch you up trailer <laughs> from volume one. When we last yeah. left our heroes. 
yeah, pretty much. It's like literally her driving in black and white going, the last time you saw me, I went on a r- fucking rampage revenge. <laughs> that sounds so here, But I do. I killed a lot of people, but I didn't. Kill Bill yeah. Volume 2. Uh, and that is the end of Kill Bill Let's Volume go. 1. We did it, guys. Thank uh, the Lord. And now that is going to take us uh, to bullet points. Bullet points! And our very first bullet point is body count. All right, John, what do you think the body count of Kill Bill Volume 1 is? I'm going to play it at 40. Oh, okay. All right. Patrick, what do you think the body count of Kill Bill Volume 1 is? I'll go ahead and bump it to 50. All right. Playing by Price's Right rules. Whoever gets the closest without going over. Patrick, you are the winner. The death toll of this movie is a surprisingly high 95. Ah, uh, did nobody tell the movie that there weren't actually 88 of them? Probably not. <laughs> well, that and, like, it's very clear in the movie, she says, like, some of you are going to leave with your lives, but That's your true. limbs yeah. belong to yeah. me. That is true. She does let some of them live. But yes, according to com, the answer is 95. <laughs> well, we gotta, yeah, yeah, we gotta... We gotta yeah. respect allotabubblegum.com. Yeah, gotta respect it. Yeah. Yeah. Sources the, are sources, people. The now defunct website that no longer works very well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's going to take us to our next bullet point A best kill Best kill Patrick what do you think the best kill Of Kill Bill Volume 1 is uh, I'm going to go with Knife in the Chest Of Vivica Fox I think you yeah. described it really well When we went over it The coffee kick's great And it's very visceral Like, And there's no spewing blood There's no cum of blood She just dies as if she got a knife in her chest. Well, Patrick, of course there's no geyser of blood. The knife is stuck there holding the blood back. Yeah, but thankfully when she pulls it out, she cleans it off like a normal human person in a world where physics exists. Because by then the the pressure in the body had dissipated and the blood (laughs) had gone back to the extremities. It hadn't gathered around the hole. Right, it was out of Tarantino's penis and back into his red, red face. Yes, well, cocaine's a hell of a drug. Right? Uh, John, best kill in Kill Bill Volume 1. So I'm going to say one of the goons in the Crazy 88 uh, in the black and white sequence, uh, he gets, like, he loses his sword and Uma Thurman does, like, a front flip off of a table and bisects him cleanly in half vertically. Yes. <laughs> and uh, that fucking rules. I ain't seen that before. It's super cool. It's super cool. The only time I had ever seen that in my life was growing up watching Voltron. And, like, there was a time where, like, Voltron cut a monster yeah, in there half. was a time where Voltron, he front-flipped off of a table, and he split a Yakuza in half, and blood went everywhere. I, mean, I remember this. Voltron literally cut a monster in half, and then, like, one half of it slid off the other half. It was awesome. Yeah, and then someone in the trailer for Cloverfield said, it's huge, it's alive. And someone said, it's a lion, it's a Voltron movie. Cloverfield is a secret Voltron movie. You remember this, guys? You were on Ain't It Cool News? I do remember Remember this. seeing all the rumors? I do remember this, and I'm not going to lie, I was a little disappointed when Voltron didn't show up. (laughs) (laughs) I was a lot disappointed when I saw the entirety of Cloverfield. It's a perfectly fine movie. That, you know, unfortunately, I, you have to listen to T.J. Miller's sex criminal yep. running commentary throughout. Yeah, I have yep. mixed feelings about that movie, but I didn't hate it. Yeah, anyways, Mark, 
Best Kill, Kill Bill Volume 1. Uh, I am going to go with, uh, it's also in the Crazy 88 fight. There is a guy who's got axes, and he throws an axe at the bride who, like, catches it. And then he throws another axe, and she, like, Matrix washes it fly past. She throws the axe bad at back at the guy. It hits him in the head, and then he skids back, like, eight feet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's good. super awesome. <laughs> Uh, that is a delightful murder. Um, there's a lot of great murders in this movie. I'm not going to lie. L- Lucy Liu getting the top of her head cut off. Also great. Um, that's going to take us to our next bullet point. War crimes. War crimes. John, talk about the war crimes in Kill Bill Volume 1. Boy, howdy. Uh, I mean, I think just an organized, uh, uh, like network of hired assassins sure pretty sure they don't let you do that in the hague yeah who cross sovereign borders to assassinate political figures yeah especially because in oren's uh flashback she definitely kills what looks to be like a dutch diplomat yeah that dude has a lot of sashes and a lot of sparkly buckles that's true his head gets exploded real nice it does patrick but like i'm pretty sure you're not allowed to do that that's true uh patrick war crimes I'm going to go with everything about and related to the pussy wagon. Yep, Just that's all fair. of it. The color scheme, sure. the interior, the lettering, the existence of it, the plot that surrounds it, the keychain. It's all wrong. It's all wrong, and someone should pay for it. <laughs> mm, that's true. I would really enjoy uh, like that sequence in the Brave Little Toaster where they're at the dump and all the cars are getting crushed <laughs> into cubes and then thrown into a fire. Yeah. If we could like do that to the pussy wagon, Yes, that would please. be nice. Uh, Mark. Also, for a movie that uh, that prides itself so much on sketching like the the like inner lives of these cartoon comic book characters, ain't no fucking way anyone is letting Buck tattoo the word "fuck" on his knuckles, <laughs> yeah, and then drive the pussy wagon. Nah. Well, and he sure as hell isn't keeping his job working at the hospital, right? <laughs> Like, this is pre-Twitter, and the world would have canceled him. Yeah, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Okay, so he's, and I, I don't want to talk about this, but we have to at this point before bringing up Buck. He's charging guys 75 bucks a pop to come up here and rape this poor woman. And he says specifically to the creepy laughing man, she's uh, she's had her, uh, uh, like, uterus taken out, like her... Her like the like the whole thing is just like out because of the 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 pregnancy was a presumably to save the baby blah 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 and he's like you can come in her all you want blah 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 and you're telling me at no point in the intervening four years did they have anybody come down and do a gynecological check on this poor woman right well again the legs just don't bend that way. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, There's nothing yeah. they could do. Yeah, yeah. Again, it, this movie gains an extra star rating if you just remove that character. Absolutely. You can even keep the stupid pussy wagon. I fine if that's the price I have to pay to get rid of Buck. I will gladly pay. Even it. if yeah. Buck was just a guy walking down the hall that she like knocked out and took his keys, and then the keys led to the pussy wagon, that would be better. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. For sure. Uh, also, 
just from a joke perspective, having her get the keychain that says Pussy Wagon and then it leads to the car that says Pussy Wagon is bad joke construction. It should have been a keychain with just a little beep beep thing on it. And then when she goes into the garage and goes beep beep, the car that goes beep beep is the Pussy Wagon. And it would have been a nice reveal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the construction of the joke is also fucked because we already know the car that she finds is the... We've already, we've already seen, seen the pussy That's wagon. also no, true. It's just awful. <laughs> That's, Anyways, it's, it's practically anyway. a war crime, is what I'm saying. Well, that leads, no, me, back, we gotcha. that leads me back to my war crime, uh, which is is the... Yeah, the, the whole, like, the... the uh, is, I was going to say, Quentin Tarantino's uh, view of Japanese culture in general. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong. Yeah, it is very exoticized. Yeah. Um, you, I, I, I just know what his Pornhub search terms are. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I'm skeeved. Oh, yeah. Anytime you have a 17-year-old assassin that you're still putting in a plaid skirt, you're fucked up, buddy. <laughs> yeah. And here's the thing. Like, there was a time in my life high school where if someone had brought up the point of just like hey it's kind of fucked up how this movie trucks in like orientalism i absolutely would have no you're not supposed to take it seriously it's just like a fun little goof and like he's doing it on purpose and it's fine and i like i did relive that feeling of being like dirtbag in high school watching this like on a loop basically on a dvd and like watching all the behind the scenes stuff and then comparing that to the person i am now where it's just like yeah patrick i totally get why you hate this movie and that's fine it, uh, yeah fair fair criticism yeah and like if there if there are people for whom watching this movie and experiencing that orientalism is just like no that's a deal breaker I yes I completely understand where that's coming from sure. we live in very bad times yes. <laughs> uh, so that's going to take us to our final bullet point is this an action movie is this an action movie Patrick is Kill Bill Volume One an action movie. No. We're not asking you if it's a good movie. Kill God Bill is a porn parody of an action movie. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the fact that it's not called Return to the 36, or should not Return to the 36 Chambers, a triple X hustler video. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's actually impressive. Yeah. No, not at all. It's, it's, it's a porn parody. I guess that technically counts in some ways, but. Uh, John, is Kill Bill Volume 1 an action movie? Patrick, I get that you don't like this movie, but it is an action movie. <laughs> it is inescapably an action movie. <sighs> that is true. Mark, is this an action movie? I got to agree with John. It is an action movie. There aren't that many action scenes in this movie, but the ones that are are, are I think, in general, pretty great uh, and, like, extended and, like, they've got some quality stuff in there. So, yes, while the movie does yeah. does have some, like, long stretches without action, uh, at at no time does the movie let up from being an action movie. It's unapologetically yeah. an action movie. Now, Kill Bill Volume say, 2 is in no way, shape, or form an action movie. <laughs> it is a Western, and it is a very slow Western yeah. at that. Oh, it is like tough. a Coen Brothers Western. It's a, it's a slow Western that has a weird martial arts like training montage in the center of it. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I do. I, 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 also record, do think, I think I don't think I've actually ever seen two. Is that, I know that that's got to be where she one-inch punches the coffin at some point, right? Or am I thinking yeah. of an entirely yes, different movie? Yes, correct. Yeah. Yes, uh, and in this movie, it's a three-inch punch. 
It's a little bit more realistic, Patrick. Uh, And I I will say just one more thing just about this movie qualitatively is that I do think the pacing of it is, if you're enjoying it, very good. Yes. I think that you're right that there are long stretches of no action, but I think it still keeps that energy up. Uh, Now, as promised, without any interruption... We talked over you a whole bunch because you were outnumbered <laughs> no, no, in this podcast. Just give me my final say and I'll, I'll, I'll say what I have then. Yeah, okay. All right. We, we will make sure not to interrupt you on your final judgment and you will take as long as you see fit. So here it is. Oh, I'll keep it short. I'll keep it short. Final, <laughs> final reviews of, of Kill Bill Volume 1. John, why don't you go first? Uh, I still super really like this movie with all of the asterisks previously discussed. I give it... A crazy 88 out of a normal amount of 88. Mark, uh, final review of Kill Bill Volume 1. Uh, I am going to, uh, I, John, I, I agree with you on this one. Again, just all the asterisks lined up uh, just right there. Uh, and I am going to give this movie um, one, one dollar store samurai sword out of one dollar store samurai sword because i used to own a dollar store samurai sword can i uh, <laughs> a I'm dollar store going to samurai amend. sword that's correct elgin I'm, illinois used to have yeah. two competing dollar stores in the same the same <laughs> shopping center across town from the other shopping center that had two competing dollar stores those two competing dollar stores on the other side of town were actually featured on an episode of the craig kilborn daily show <laughs> uh but at my dollar store the competing dollar store one sold like produce and like regular goods that you might find at a small store the other one sold weapons and i bought (laughs) i bought multiple swords there at that dollar store nice so i would like to just add on to my to my final review score i would like to add one uh short sleeve silk button shirt with an airbrushed anime figure on the back (laughs) that's absolutely a thing that i also owned in high school yep i got you Uh, all right now let's clear the path here it is man patrick Uh, first final review of kill bill volume one first i just and before you go on i just want to let you know i'm not going to interrupt you (laughs) we're going to let you do this uh just speak your mind i was just gonna i know it's important for you i know it's important for you no i'm sorry i'm sorry go ahead just wanted to point out that where I grew up, we had to buy our fake swords at the flea market. <laughs> I had to buy my fake swords at the Renaissance Fair. <laughs> well, I John, would also that like makes to... you the classiest guy of all three of us. I, <laughs> I, I would also like to point out that this wasn't when I was growing up. This was post-college 2004 <laughs> that I bought these dollar store swords. <laughs> I would also like to uh, tag onto that. This also was when I graduated high school <laughs> that I bought a Renaissance Fair sword from a pirate ship. <laughs> okay, Patrick, final review, Kill Bill Volume 1. I, oh man, hate this movie and this guy. And the reasons for it are I actually really am a big fan of action. I'm a big fan of uh, violence where people don't get hurt in real life. I'm a big fan of uh, repurposing traditional Japanese culture for our own entertainment. Uh, I love fucking Kurosawa and all, all of that stuff. And I love samurai and martial arts action movies in China. And this guy takes all of these things that i love and makes me embarrassed to enjoy them it makes it's he's the sort of 
artist that is why we have warnings against violence in movies. Like when you hear those things about people blaming shitty people on video games and movies, you always laugh like it's bullshit until you see a Tarantino film and see a shitty person that was shitty and influenced by this crap. And I can only hope that one day the proper authorities will capture Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> place him in the kennel where he belongs so that he can lick his testicles safely out of view from the rest of us, the public. And that's what I have to say yeah. about that man and this movie. And it just an impassioned defense of Quentin Tarantino right there. Just fantastic work. <laughs> um, and yeah, I just, as a response to that, I just want to say, dude, I get yeah, it. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> you know, I get it. You're not wrong if, at all. If we intend to watch volume two, it cannot take place until we've all gotten our shots and can at least eat pizza. Fair. Fair, <laughs> right. fair, fair. I'm not Deal. doing it until then. I, well, if we follow the, 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 the pattern that we have set up for most of this podcast, not counting Star Wars, uh, it should be about a year before You're we well about a year about a year okay. before we get to the sequel. That's about how long we did between Diehards. <laughs> so yeah, well, and Robocop. This is interesting. This is interesting though because it is one movie that will take us a year between <laughs> yeah. to finish watching it. Yeah. I think our next one we should watch the first hour of Blade Runner twenty forty nine. And then in six months, we'll polish it off. Yeah. I had no idea until you told me that it was actually originally put as one movie and that they broke it up for, for purposes. Yeah, what's what I find deeply infuriating is for as long as this movie has existed, there has been a promise that they're going to release. It would be, Again, it premiered at Cannes as a like four-hour movie, and they keep saying, we're going to put it out on DVD, the con cut. Kill Bill, the whole bloody affair. There have been reports of like, oh, we were at a Miramax party and someone and like a prototype of the DVD cover was on display and we like took pictures and it looked cool. And like it never came out. And at this point, it probably never will because it's got that that Weinstein stank on it. Like, I don't know what legally we can do with any of those Miramax movies now. Well, so like, I don't know who actually owns them. I'm, I'm Get to the sure backbone. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they're all owned by Disney now. Yeah. Well, I know that they were always, like, in partnership with Disney. Right. But I don't know if, like, because remember, he split to form the Weinstein Company at the height of his powers. Yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised if he had some contract fuckery that was just like, I get a say in the Miramax movies. I'm pretty sure that part of the deal he had with Disney was he walked away from Miramax in all ways, shape, and forms. And that's why he had to form his own separate company. Because he didn't like, have that yeah, stuff it wasn't, anymore. It, yeah, it wasn't a rebranding of the same company. It was, I no longer own this company. I'm moving on and doing my own thing. Yeah. Well, yeah. I just, I do, I do really hope that at some point, because here's the other thing. I have the Japanese cut on DVD, like imported from Japan, but Japan never got a Blu-ray cut. So the, yeah. Uh. So you can only see it in standard uh, definition, which is a bummer. Out of curiosity, in the beginning when it's black and white in the Japanese cut, is it also black and white for that scene as well? It is still black and white. Okay. That is like an actual yeah. stylistic choice. Because that's a flashback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Well, that's it. Kill Bill Volume 1. We did it. Patrick, you didn't die or burst into I flames. Didn't. 
I'm you were, very pleased. <laughs> it's crazy. Patrick, you were able to watch a Christopher Nolan movie and a Quentin Tarantino movie back to back, and you're still alive. And I, I actually provided my consent in both places. It wasn't like I was outvoted or bullied into it. We gave you options. That's true. We both times gave you options. In yeah. fact, we left yeah. this one up to you specifically. And what you was took- my other choice? Uh, Blade Runner, oh, yeah, the Blade final Runner. cut. But we were yeah. going to do the old one, right? Like, yeah. 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 Correct. Yeah. But you chose to pull the Band-Aid off early. Yes. I did want to. I knew this was coming. I needed to get it out of the way. So, Patrick, you'll definitely have a weighted vote the next time we choose movies. Sweet. Just so we know, the next time we choose movies is in six months. In the meantime, we are going to have to watch all of the Evangelion movies back to back to back to back. <laughs> followed by an airing of the all 26 episodes of the original anime, followed by the original theatrical <laughs> release of Death Squared Equals True, followed by End of Evangelion. Ah, See you then. Join us next week, listeners, for body counts and beer. Four plus eight parentheses seven (laughs) decimal point X square root. Uh, So that's going to do it for this episode of Body Counts and Beer. I am Mark Cobra Rosenthal. I remain Patrick Hogan's Pythons Bromley. And I am Jonathan Chicken Snake Taylor Rooney. Oh, he changed his code word. I did. Ah, he's probably working for MI5 now. They they, they go into the coops and they eat up all the eggs. Ooh, fancy. Nice. And I like eggs. Eggs are delicious. They're very good. So that's going to do it for this uh, episode of Body Counts. Boil them, mash them, stick them in a stew. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. All right, we're done here. Goodbye forever. Goodbye. (laughs) Body Counts and Beer is Patrick Bromley, John Rooney Taylor, and Mark Rosenthal. Please subscribe to us wherever I get podcasts from. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever. Don't matter. Just listen. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Check us out on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at BodyCountCast. Or you can email us at BodyCountsAndBeer at gmail.com.